TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions of the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who knows better than to upset the spirit world, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, the fall 2013 TV season has officially returned with Dan and I covering Castle, Person of Interest, and The Legend of Korra, and our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Sleepy Hollow, Hostages, Mom, The Blacklist, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, New Girl, The Goldbergs, South Park, Back in the Game, Revolution, Elementary, The Crazy Ones, and The Michael J. Fox Show, amongst the hosts of new shows that premiered this week. Yeah, that's, I know that's a lot of shows for this week that eventually is going to be narrowed down but before we get into all the new stuff that's coming out we're going to have news with nico which is going to talk about new stuff that may come out next year because they're already deciding that cbs might open another ncis in new orleans Someone at CBS has finally realized that the network could use another edition of NCIS, so another spin-off is in the works. The new series would be set in and around New Orleans, with a backdoor pilot planned for a supersized spring episode of the original series. NCIS star Mark Harmon would produce, with fall 2014 a likely debut date for what can only be called NCIS NO. Or no. Yeah. I don't know about this, because the Los Angeles spinoff isn't that great, is it? I, I still watch watch it but no it's kind of ridiculous there's another one i think coming out this year that is like red cell or red teams or something like that ncis red teams they already did like a backdoor pilot it from the la one it's a spinoff of the la one this would be a spinoff of the original one and it would not star but it would be produced by mark Harmon. so i don't know I, I think there's probably already enough NCIS. It's getting to be like CSI. Yeah. But to be honest, the original one's still the number one show on television. So CBS has got to be thinking, why not? Yeah. Fox orders to series Gotham, origin story for Batman lore's Commissioner Gordon. On the same night Marvel launched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it's been revealed that DC is making another big step in TV, with Commissioner Gordon getting his own live-action right. series. Following a bidding war between the networks, the Warner Brothers TV-produced series called Gotham has ended up at Fox. Showing what a big deal Gotham is, it's been given a straight-to-series order, bypassing the pilot stage. The series wow. will focus on a young detective James Gordon and the villains that made Gotham famous. Bruno Heller, behind Rome and the Mentalist, is writing the Commissioner Gordon pilot, which will presumably launch during the 2014-2015 TV season. Gotham will take place before Gordon meets Batman, who will not be a part of the series. Smart move, actually. Yeah, DC already has one TV show currently on the air, Arrow, and a second is very possible 
for next year with the Flash being introduced on Arrow in Season 2 as a potential spin-off character. That being the case, it's possible we could have three DC-based series on the air by next fall. The announcement of Gotham is another sign that the Christopher Nolan Batman era is over. It was known that DC and Warner Brothers could never allow any direct tie-ins to Batman on Smallville, and there were rumors that Nolan himself squashed the potential young Dick Grayson series, The Graysons, that the CW was developing, not wanting any Batman-related live-action projects occurring during his uber-successful film trilogy. But with a new Batman coming to the movies in the form of Ben Affleck, we're now going to get our first James Gordon since Gary Oldman played him for Nolan, and it'll be an even younger version than we met in Batman Begins, it seems. How Gotham might tie into Arrow and potentially The Flash, if at all, is unclear at this point. Yeah. Given the different networks they're airing on, crossovers would certainly be more difficult, and the pre-Batman era Gotham the show is going to take place in might leave it as a series standing on its own in any event. This will be interesting, and if it focuses on the deterioration of Gotham to the point where we need Batman, then that is what will make it worth watching in my opinion. I do not want to see characters that are so tied into the Bat that him not being there makes no sense like the Joker but otherwise I'm really excited by this news and the possibility yeah. of this I think it's going to be interesting I'm amazed that it's not going to be on the CW network I thought there wasn't a way around that because yeah, Michael and I talked about, you know, if, if they got a DC show at another network, it might add more quality to it um, or a little bit more respect given to it. Not that Arrow isn't great in its own right, but this is big that it's on Fox. And I know Fox is very cutthroat, but I think this is a good move for the network. And I think that this show is going to be really, really hyped if it's going to be on something like Fox. Well, Fox had a lot of success in the first season of Human Target. Right. Another DC product. But I'm expecting that Fox won out here because they were willing to invest the most amount of money into it. Yeah. And they thought that it was going to be an opportunity to get back into the superhero game and not have to compete against Arrow or The Flash because this is going to be a pre-Batman. So it's going to be before right. those things. So I think it's going to be a good opportunity for Fox to do something different within that same genre. Well, I think it's going to be a lot the, of fun. It's one of the greatest Batman TV shows ever made. started out on Fox. So bringing it back to Fox, I don't mind it so much. Mm -hmm. And Batman sells. Yeah. I mean, even if Batman's not in it, that universe itself sells. Because I know, Nico, you will be watching this show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That setting. Gotham City, is, for sure, yeah. Yeah, Gotham City will sell this series. And I think Commissioner Gordon, seeing him rise up the ranks to become commissioner, will be really interesting. As his star rises and the city sort of falls or deteriorates into the madness that eventually needs right. the bat is going to be really cool to see. Star Wars 1313, Bubba Fett concept art and story details released. Following the shutdown of LucasArts, an important piece of information came to light about Star Wars 1313. Bubba Fett would have been the star. Replacing the placeholder character shown at E3 and Star Wars Celebration, the infamous bounty hunter would have taken center stage in 1313 on a mission through the seedy underbelly of the multi-layered planet planet of Coruscant. Recently, a source showed IGN a 15-minute demo of 1313 that would have debuted at this year's E3. While footage in the demo was still in development and much of it was still using incomplete assets, it was the most extensive look at 1313 we've ever seen, and all of it included Boba Fett in action. Star Wars 1313 would have begun with a prologue on Tatooine. Various bounty hunters seen in the game would have worked for different crime bosses, and Boba Fett unsurprisingly served job 
Jabba the Hutt. Here, we see a young Fett very early in the game, long before he even has his Mandalorian armor, instead wearing only the most basic outfit. While I love the purchase of Star Wars by Disney because it will allow for more movies to be made, the loss of this video game, something I was eagerly anticipating, is the worst casualty of that merger slash purchase. Take a look at some of the concept art in the link in the ACC feed. It's really cool stuff. So this game is not happening now? I don't think so. I don't think Disney's going to spend the money to continue oh. development. It's not ready to go. If it were really close, then maybe. But it's still months, maybe years away from release. So LucasArts was a, a money loser in Disney's eyes, so they closed it down and therefore are going to just throw this in the vault with a lot of other projects. And that's unfortunate because I thought LucasArts made some really solid games. Yeah, going back to some of the early ones that were back on Pentium machines and stuff, I, I played Rebel Assault. I think that was one of their first ones and that was definitely the first one I was introduced to. It was a lot of fun, just really good Star Wars content. Yeah. So it's sad to see that this go because I saw a little promo back a year and a half ago and got really excited about it. Well, I, I hope Disney Interactive picks up with Star Wars games because they continue to make them because I love Star Wars games. They're fun. Exactly. Yeah, I'm hoping so too. Martin Freeman to star in the TV adaptation of Fargo. Sherlock star Martin Freeman may soon be pulling double duty. The actor has landed the lead role in FX's limited TV series Fargo. Freeman will star as Lester Nygaard, a whiny, inept insurance salesman inspired by William H. Macy's character in the 1996 film. Freeman joins Fargo's only other officially announced cast member, Billy Bob Thornton, whose ruthless Lorne Malvo will set Nygaard on a path of destruction. Production of Fargo will begin in October for a U.S. Spring 2014 premiere. That's interesting. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it should be good. <laughs> it's a good movie. Yeah. I just hope it can make the long haul of a TV show. With two stars of that caliber... I have no doubt that it will be good. Yeah, all right. Got its effects, too. They make quality stuff. Constantine TV show in development at NBC. It's interesting as well. In another stunning TV-related announcement from Warner Brothers, it looks like Swamp Thing's supernatural advisor, the notorious John Constantine, might be next in line for a television drama. IGN is reporting that NBC is moving to develop a new series from David S. Goyer and Daniel Cerrone based on the character. That's certainly a rich history to pull from, as the character was created by Alan Moore and Steve Bissett in the midst of their Swamp Thing run, and he then went on to star in Vertigo's longest-running series to date, Hellblazer, which just ended earlier this year with issue 300. The character has since been reintegrated into the DC Universe and currently appears in both Justice League Dark and his own solo book, Constantine. This news comes only days after WB revealed Gotham over at Fox, and we just commented on a moment ago, and it remains to be seen what ties, if any, Constantine will have to the show or the Justice League Dark movie that Guillermo del Toro has long been touting. And of course, there was that Keanu Reeves movie a few years back as well. Seems like DC's tried to pummel Marvel and ABC. Got every corner here, coming at it from NBC and Fox. This is true. It's, yeah. I'm I'm excited. I'm a DC fan, so seeing more DC products in the television and film industry is exactly what we want. Right. The and comic networks, books different networks coming to my try. Yeah, the comic books are great and I love reading the comic books, but I also love television, obviously. Oh yeah. <laughs> so seeing it's exciting. seeing these great characters that were brought up or invented for the comics brought to television 
is a lot of fun. And it gives a place for some of those lower supporting characters to really break out. Yes. And follow. I mean, Constantine's kind of a side character. Commissioner Gordon, obviously, is a side character. So it's cool to see this happening. And I think this show would go really well side by side with Grimm. Paired up on the same night, Yeah, with Constantine and Grimm. Yeah, I agree. Those are very consistent themed yeah, shows. Yeah, I, I think the same audience would be interested in both shows. Agreed. Yeah. And that's the news with Nico for, for this sure. week. That's great stuff. I'm excited for all of that. Okay, with that, I'm going to talk about a uh, premiere episode I was really nervous about, but then was surprisingly pleasantly pleased with after I was all done watching it. Because I was really surprised that it was part one of a two-part episode. Yep. So let's talk about an episode that's going to start off a whole new era or chapter for Castle with the episode entitled Valkyrie. <laughs> Beckett must decide whether to take the high-profile job in D.C. and what to say to Castle about his marriage proposal. Both must deal with the consequences of their decisions when they are plunged into a high-stakes investigation. Federal investigator Rachel McCord plays a central role in how Beckett decides what to do about her future. At the end of last season, we left things with our reviews on Castle being very concerned about the show's future. Because we really hated the plotline of Beckett being unsure about where her relationship with Castle was going. Which ultimately led to Castle proposing to her as the fifth season ending cliffhanger. Personally, I thought Beckett was going to say no to Castle. Kitty, the reset button, got her romance with him. Got forcing Castle to win her back again. But to my surprise, she said yes to him. Got just like that, all the nonsense about Beckett being unsure about their romance was washed away. Got we went right back to that state of bliss, which I thought made the first half of last season so great. Again, that doesn't mean I think life is perfect for them, because they've got this long issue with Beckett's new job in D.C. But it felt more like a conflict that they have to work through instead of a romance shakeup. Because Castle and Beckett were interacting with each other throughout the entire episode. And most importantly, we're still in love with each other. So, Nico, starting off, were you surprised that Beckett said yes? Did you like how the writers handled her response by creating this conflict of Castle? Got Beckett trying to make it work over a long distance? Dan, we discussed in our last review of Castle oh so many months ago that we saw it going either way, but that we, as you mentioned, thought it was going to be a no and a reset of their relationship. I think we both were pretty certain that that was unfortunately the way it was going to go. That didn't happen, (laughs) but I was not exactly blindsided by this yes answer either because you and I had discussed that possibility also. So I liked that they went this way. But I wasn't completely blindsided by it. And okay. I think that's, you know, a, a little bit to the fact that we talked it out a lot at the right, end of exactly. the season. I actually liked the way it went and thought her response that if it was just to keep her there in New York City, then no, she didn't want to get married. But if he were serious and w- when he said it was because he couldn't imagine his life without her, then it was a definite yes. And I thought that was the perfect way to handle it because it showed those doubts that she was having. Yeah. But his answer to those doubts and exactly. it cleared it all up. I thought that was perfect. Ultimately, I thought this was a great resolution to the worst story arc in this show's history. Exactly. As you said, it wiped the slate clean. And it was brilliant, brilliant way to do it. And they needed to do it. Absolutely. I mean, we said, oh my God, this show is going to be a mess if they don't fix it. Yeah, if two people who are so big of fans as you and I are starting to question whether we're going to want to talk about this show anymore, something was wrong. And now they totally wiped that out because we're right back in into right. this story and jumping into it. Yeah. But now, again, we're not out of the woods yet either. There's no still conflicts there. It's not like Bones where everything's perfect every week. Right. And yeah. that's why it's good. It, oh, there yeah. are 
issues, there are things, but it took a complete turnaround from going, you know, it was nose diving and oh, all yeah. of a sudden the pilot got back in the seat, pulled back on the stick and righted the ship. And now they're in a climb to get out of that trouble and they're not out yet but they're still coming back i like that well as as we're climbing we're going through some some clouds yeah (laughs) guys we're introduced to a whole new set of characters here we've got beckett's new partner rachel record who's played by lisa edelstein who uh, most tv watchers will recognize as dr cuddy from house and ironically enough she also voices tedson's sister kia on the legend of korra so she's on two shows recovering right now got beckett also got a new supervisor who i like based on the way he handled good interrogation with castle He's a much better step up from Captain Gates. But I don't know if it's necessarily gone yet. So, Nico, what are your thoughts on the new characters? Uh, if I were truly worried about them replacing Ryan and Esposito, then I'd be disappointed with them. But since I only foresee them lasting a few more episodes or maybe a half a season or even possibly only the next episode, I, I like yeah. them here. They are not Ryan and Esposito by any means and are much more abrasive at this point because they're new. Right. But as a change of pace and a means to inject some action and controversy into the story, it was good. Exactly. I did not like Lisa Edelson's character very much. I, I think that's intentional at this point. Yeah. I think she is supposed to be abrasive, like I said. The male partner was barely worth mentioning, but I did enjoy the boss or team leader played by Yancey Arias. Yeah. Which, much like Mark A. Shepard, has been in just about every show we've ever watched. I agree. (laughs) But all in all, I enjoyed this new team for what they're worth, but I don't want or expect them to last long on this show because I do want to see Ryan and Esposito brought back into the fold. I did like Beckett running into a female cop. That was kind of like her. I liked the concept behind it. I don't know if the actress was the best choice, but I did like the concept behind it. Yeah. Now, another new character we were introduced to, and I'm sure a lot of people either love him or hate him, is Alexis his new lazy bum wayward boyfriend who's taken up residence in Castle's Park uh, much to his dismay. Kaneko, do you think this character is going to act as solid comic relief or do you think the writer should get his butt out of town? Both, Dan. He's currently the comic relief and it was only sort of comedic but I think it will soon lose any measure of humor yeah. and needs to be resolved. And I think Alexis needs to kick him to the curb. I think I more than Castle interjecting, I think uh, Alexis needs to realize that he's he's not worth her time and just kick him to the curb. Also, there was a lack of Martha last season, I thought. Mm-hmm. And I think you could get some pretty good laughs out of her. So let us see more of her. Yeah. Let's not focus on this point, friend. Yeah. Let's get him out. I agree. Yeah. And at the same time, as we were getting introduced to these new characters, I realized 15 minutes went by without checking in with their old favorites, guys in Ryan and Esposito. I was a little nervous. I was like, oh my God, if they get rid of these guys, that's going to stink. But they showed up. We didn't have to worry about saying goodbye. And I thought they were showed up in a great way to put Castle smack dab in the middle of Beckett's case. So, Nico, were you pleased with the part that Ryan and Esposito played in this episode? God, if the show moves its study to DC, are we going to see them get phased out of the show? Or do you think the writers will find a way to get them out? Beckett's team. Dan, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think that the other team has a short shelf life on this show and that for whatever reason, Beckett will return to the NYPD and our boys will be on the team again with Castle and Beckett all back together. But I could be wrong. That's an easy fix and I don't know if that's where they're going to go. It could be that the show splits and we see Ryan and Esposito working cases in New York and Beckett and maybe Castle with her after this health scare next week working cases in DC with some crossover and sometimes just just separate cases, but I could see the show kind of going that way for at least a little while where yeah. we we have that going on. 
it could be an interesting way for the show to move forward and i think that could be a lot of fun to see we could also see castle visiting new york city when he goes home to his apartment or something and getting pulled in to help the guys with the case they're working on at the time that could be fun as well and i actually like that idea as an alternative if they're not all working together i really think the show needs a shot in the arm i think that's really an important thing and so i think mixing up the setting or doing this back and forth thing or something would really work to keep it interesting and fresh right because by the time all their mystery shows we've watched got to this point they were really repetitive they were the same thing every week and so i think them changing it up and i liked the movie back and forth because it was just something new to watch yeah and i think that it'll keep them away from that silly plot line we had last season rebecca's like i'm unsure of what's going on i don't want that stuff right so if they have stuff going on in their personal lives or professional lives i think that's more interesting than the emotional stuff at this point Okay, focusing on this story and our mystery of the episode, I think one of the reasons the Reiners ran out of steam in the tail end of last season is that Castle had become too comfortable at the precinct. Got the Nathan Fillon humor that had drawn me to this show of Castle getting into trouble had begun to fade. But with this new cast of characters in DC, gets back again because they obviously want our favorite mystery writer to keep his nose out of their cases because they are classified. God, do you agree with this assessment, Nico, that a new cast of characters has allowed Castle to get in the type of trouble that made the earlier season so much fun could be big kid he was too much curiosity for his own good absolutely dan and if the writers do decide to keep the show going this way that will be the best part of the show as castle re-ingratiates his way onto a new team indeed this will allow for nathan Fillon to do what he does best on the show be funny and be mischievous i think if we do see this DC team stick around for a while, we will have more fun than we did in the second half of last season. But I still don't know if that's the way they're going to go, and I don't see yeah. this team lasting all that long. But if they do, it's going to be fun, I think, for the viewers. Yeah, and, and Castle was really a lot of fun in this episode. Yeah. I think he's the most fun we've, that we've seen him in a while, and so I really like that. Got flashback to our review on the season 5 finale once again. Our biggest disappointment with the episode was it being a standard case with a wedding proposal cliffhanger tacked onto it instead of an edge of your seat roller coaster of emotions like the season 3 and 4 finales. Meaning that Castle was a series, as I said before, that was in need of a shot in the arm. God, I think the writers did that with this premiere by coming right out of the gate doing one of the things that they do best. A government conspiracy filled two part episode, which I felt captured the fun of the series and its occasional well done Ted storytelling with the cliffhanger of Castle being infected with the chemical agent that only gives him 24 hours to live. Nico, were you surprised that Castle went with one of their heavy hitting two-part episodes right at the beginning of the season and it was the shot in the arm that the show needed? Dan, I was not surprised because we had been so worried about the problem that was the whole Beckett relationship issue that we needed something big, exciting, and interesting to watch in this premiere. And what better way to alleviate our concerns than with a two-parter? Yeah. So, Dan, I thought this was perfect and exactly that shot in the arm you called it. Yes, I am so glad about this because I really wasn't excited about this show coming back. No. I was so nervous. I was not even really wanting to watch it on Monday night. And I was gonna, I decided to bite the bullet. I was gonna be strong and I was very, very pleased. And with that being pleased, it was, I, my brain went wild with me creating predictions for next week's episode. And they don't really revolve around how Castle's gonna be cured because we all know he's gonna get out of this mess. Just like all the other ones he's gotten himself into. I mean, it's dumb if the main character died. Especially right. on this show, which is pretty happy-go-lucky. And really, I'm more envisioning what impact Castle almost dying is going to have on his romance with Beckett. Can I really see it going one of two ways? Either the outcome of this case gets Castle, Ryan, and Esposito a place on Beckett's team in D.C., or Beckett realizing the danger that it 
puts Castlewood, quits the DC job, guy goes back to the old job, got the precinct. Personally, as I said earlier, I think the writers should try to make the DC job work because it raises the stakes. Got the cases being solved this season. It helps it compete with The Blacklist, which is kind of a similar show in this hour arc. And I also think that the overarching plot lines revolving around Castle's dad, Senator Brackett, or even the Triple Killer can fit into this setting very nicely. Got me brought back in really pretty big ways. So what do you think, Nico? Should the writers of Castle make a go of it with moving the setting to DC? Yeah, Dan, I think you're right. They definitely could go either way, but really should make a go of it to bring the boys from New York City to the DC team or possibly just Castle on the team for now and do the two stories slash two team idea I mentioned earlier. Either way, I think keeping the DC team in play makes the show better and will be the way they go for a while. But I think that team is short lived, as I've mentioned a couple times. Yeah. Regardless, I'm way more excited about this show than I was even last week before the premiere. So this is a great revitalization of the show we love with a great first episode. Yeah. I'm excited again. I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah, and that's what's so great. I mean, they really worked hard over the summer to make this better. And, and I feel like that if this episode was such a big step up, that they really got a good plan set up, at least for the first half of the season, kind of how they're going to do things. I agree. Can I could see Esposito getting to D.C. with his military background. Can I just see Ryan just ending up being brought along for the party? <laughs> God, we'll see. Again, they can do the back and forth thing because, again, Castle can fly anywhere because right. he's a writer. So. Right. You just jump on a plane and it's good. Kind of would be fun to have an episode where the old team just gets back together for the heck of it to solve something as well. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. So I, I think that's enough for that. I think we covered it pretty well. Yep. We're excited again. That's the main point. Yeah. But let's talk now about a pilot episode that I think was a little bit slower for the show. But as it alluded at the end of the episode, I think it's going to get intense pretty quick. And I think we kind of needed to breathe there because last season ended pretty intense. So let's, you know, slow things down and build things back up again to some pretty big, exciting stuff. So let's talk about what we think's in store for season three of Person of Interest with this premiere episode, Liberty. While Reese and his new partner Sam try to find a number, a naval petty officer in town for Fleet Week, Carter tries to eliminate HR for good after being demoted to patrol officer because of a frame-up. Meanwhile, Root settles in to her new life at the asylum. The season premiere of Person of Interest was really just a standard run-of-the-mill case. And she gave Fitch a number, got Reese along with his team, worked to save his life. But really, just doing a standard thing was fine with me, because after everything that happened, kind of finale, kind of being away from the show for a couple months, I really kind of needed to refresh my mind on this show and also to be able to wrap my head around everything again. However, the time between watching this episode and doing this write-up, I kind of realized that Reese, kind of the person of interest for the week, sharing kind of the same reason behind joining the military, might give this episode a little more significance as it I think might have been foreshadowing a season-long story arc for Reese, where we may learn about his life before joining the military, could possibly maybe his family, because as Fitch mentioned, we don't know much about that. So Nico, do you think this is the direction they're going with uh, Reese's character arc this season? You know, Dan, I'm not sure. I had a similar thought as well when the episode ended, but if we do learn more about Reese's life before joining the army, it will be in a trickle of information coming out like it did at the end of this episode. I don't foresee us getting an episode like the root episode last season where we solve a mystery from her past or solved a mystery from her past or anything like that but we may get a flashback or two throughout the rest of the season but my prediction is that it will be offhanded comments like this week's ending that will enlighten us to his history if we get that sort of information this year 
All I could see is maybe a reoccurring character showing up that has something to do with his past. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that idea. I don't know how it's going to work or how that's going to play out, but I could just see maybe a character coming around or maybe there's an episode where someone recognizes him from his old life and he's got to deal with that. Or a person of interest is someone he knows from his past. That's another thing. Yeah, that would be a good way as well. So. I mean, we'll just see on that. It's just speculation there, but it's interesting to think about because this show does make us think. And at the same time, God, this episode started out with a conflict that I really think we knew that was coming up for Shaw of the rest of the team having a problem with her leaving a body count when helping persons of interest. At the beginning, it kind of started out as this funny thing with Fusco's reaction as he was the driver of the horse and carriage that Shaw got up on and just blew a bunch of guys away. Thought that was a really funny, great scene. Great return for Fusco. But then it really kind of became more of a serious matter when the episode kind of moved on. Okay, with that, Nico, I've got to ask you, are we going to see like a cautionary tale making shock question her tendency to kill or do you think she's going to be inspired to change her ways by failing to save a person of interest Dan I think we saw in this episode that she is already attempting to try and not kill when she does not have to in response to Reese telling her that this is how they operate on this team I don't think it matters to Shaw what any of the others might think about her or her acceptance on the team but I do think she does care what Reese thinks and that is why she's willing to not kill when working with him I like the scene she had with the sniper rifle and how she was bragging about her shot through a wall in the dark to hit the guy in the elbow. I thought that was fun. But yeah, I think you were right that there might be a an instance where she fails to save a person of interest because she killed someone or she kills the wrong person or she ends up killing the person of interest or something of that nature because she just instinctively or reflexively kills. And I think that might be the thing that ultimately makes her like Batman with a no-kill rule. Right. God, I'm really anxious to see what they do with this character. I thought she came off really well and was set up very well in the second season. God, I'm more interested in learning about this character. Yeah, I've loved her from her introduction episode. Yeah. Okay, speaking of other characters, uh, Finch and Fusco in this episode, they really kind of just maintain their same roles. Uh, Finch being the information strategist guy. Got uh, Fusco being the comic relief who runs a helping hand when needed. Again, I think development from Finch is going to come from Machine, kind of currently going on a rebellious streak. Almost acting like a teenager. Can I get to more on that in a second? And then Fusco reacting to the downward spiral that I think Carter seems to be riding on. But those things are going to be left to future episodes. So, Nico, is there anything you want to bring up about Fitcher Fusco this week? I think we'll get more coming down the road. Yeah, there's not really much I wanted to talk about. They're both just maintained in this episode rather than doing anything new. I do hope we see more about Finch or more Finch in the next episodes, which I do expect going forward. I thought it was unusual how little he was actually in this episode. Yeah. I love the opening scene with Fusco in a beard as the coachman of the horse-drawn carriage. Yeah. That was fun. It was great, but I think they were kind of underused in this episode and just sort of, you know, there. Just because they had to show them, otherwise we'd be saying, where were they? But I don't think they had a purpose, really. And I hope that changes going forward. Yeah, I just think there were a lot of other fish to fry in this episode. Yeah. And so I, I think we'll get them as it goes. Sure. Now, through our extensive watching of television, season three of a series is when it has a tendency to get dark. Okay, with this being person of interest, third season, it seems like some of this darkness is going to come from Root at the insane asylum. Guys explaining to her psychiatrist that she worships the machine as a god kind of creeped me out. With her explaining that she was in an argument with the machine about killing the good doctor. I'm wondering if the machine put Root there in hopes of rehabilitating her in exchange for setting it free. However, with Finch expressing to Reese his concerns about the machine now acting on its own, I for the first time began to feel leery of it or look at it as an enemy. But then again, based on the machine's age, it could just be acting as a rebellious team. 
What's your crackpot theory on the machine's motive? Got this point, Nico. Dan, I'm hopeful that if season three does go dark, as many shows do in their third season, that you are correct. And it is the root story that goes dark and not our main story arc, because I don't want to see that. I agree. I also don't see the machine as an enemy yet. At least I'm not there the way you might be. Right. Not, not that you are, but that you said you might start to see it that way. Yeah. But rather, I see it as using the government, the person of interest team, and Root to achieve its goals in the most efficient means available. That's very possible. In other words, if it's a national concern, the information goes to the government and works like it was intended to when the machine was created. If it's an irrelevant person, then it will alert Finch. And it also talks to Root for other issues at the same time. So I see it as the machine using the different resources available to it for different needs rather than having a rebellious streak. Although maybe the the thing with Root is sort of reaching out for a new mentor or trying to learn more by interacting with different types of people. And so I think as long as the machine is still working the way it's been working, giving the numbers to Finch, giving the numbers to the government, and then still talking to Root in some way, then I do think it's going to be okay. Going in the machine is kind of like Batman. You know, Batman kind of helps the irrelevant people, lets like the cops and the government deal with other stuff, mm-hmm. and then works on almost rehabilitating the criminals. You know, there's several episodes, there's several Batman stories, where Batman almost feels like he's taking care of the villains, or it's his goal to look out for them in a way. Okay. You know how he's constantly saying to some of them, Mr. Freeze is a good example, offering to help them with their situation. I mean, still giving them justice, but also explaining, you know, Freeze, I, I could help you deal with your wife's situation. Could you see Batman Sub-Zero, stuff like that. So I'm wondering if that's kind of the thing. The machine realized, okay, Root needed to be stopped. She deserved justice. But at the same time, maybe she deserves a second chance. You know, I mean, if it's built to be something the government use, maybe it's got its own sense of a justice system. This is an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, with this, and I don't know if I fully agree with this. Nico, I did like your point that with this, this season goes dark. I don't want to see it in the main storyline anyway. But another character that may cause person of interest to fit the TV trope of season three being dark is Carter, who's kind of been demoted to a patrol officer for what Fusco described as a frame-up. But I kind of personally think she might be guilty of the crime that she's accused of because a part of freeing Elias from prison. Also, I like this concept of Elias trying to tarnish the image of a good cop because really he's such a great villain, a manipulator. And I really want to see more of him. But did Carter really have to get in cahoots with him? Go for HR? Because as we said at the end of last season, we're really kind of tired of that story arc. Nico, were you surprised to see Carter go this far to bring HR down for killing Detective Beecher? Added uh, connection to the question. Do you think Carter knew Goliath's right-hand man was going to come and take the diamonds right after Reese had set up the Russians and sea dogs to kill each other? Dan, I'm not surprised about Carter's involvement right. with Elias because, as she said, she could not take him back to prison because they'd just attempt to kill him again if she did. I think she's essentially using him as an asset that she gets information from in exchange for not arresting him or allowing him to be killed. I do not think she expected his right-hand man to steal the diamonds and would maybe have mentioned something to Reese to grab the evidence for her if she did suspect it. She would not have allowed Elias to profit from the situation if she had known it was going to happen. So I wasn't surprised that she's using Elias as a resource. I was maybe a little bit surprised at how comfortable they were together. I agree. I agree. It's like what Elias is doing is a better interpretation of what Spader's trying to do on the blacklist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good call. Yeah. You know, I, I, can Rico call Tony? He's really good. It's Elias on this show. I love him. Got I it. love him so much. <laughs> 
God, I'm glad we're seeing him back kind of out of the street, being the bad guy he was in the first season. Yeah, it'll give him a lot, lot more range yeah. in what he can do. Having him behind bars was was fun for a short time period, but it's going to be so much better when he can be back to being that secret boss and everything. It'll be fun. Well, and I think last season the thing was there was things that needed to be explained about the machine before I think he came back out. Yeah. Because I think whatever he's up to is going to pertain to a lot of that information we found out. Okay. So I, I think that was done on purpose. I think we needed to know more background before what happens next with them. Or they just didn't have time last season. That, that's another possibility. Okay. Because there was a lot of stuff they covered last season. Right. Okay, finally, this is a kind of a prediction for the future. Do you think that as we see Shaw move away from almost being a hardened killer, we're going to start to see Carter spiral down into someone who loses their sense of morality? Kind of the second half of the season, or possibly next season, it's going to be kind of this storyline where almost Shaw uses the change in her character to bring Carter back to the good cop we originally knew her as at the beginning of the series. I, mean, I don't know if this is likely. Maybe it's be a combination of Reese and Shaw helping Carter. I don't know what's the deal. What's your thoughts on it, Nico? Obviously, yes to the first part, as I mentioned earlier earlier yeah. but no to the second part okay. i do see shaw moving away from being a hardened killer sometimes slowly and with stuff sometimes killing without thinking and having issues with reese but i do think she looks to reese for support and cares what he thinks of her so she will make every effort to change that instinct to kill as for carter i don't foresee her going dark or spiraling out of control i think she will take her medicine and be a patrolman until she can get HR and clear her name. I don't see her going okay. dark. I just don't like that idea. I don't want to see it. I don't I either. Think, I just kind of felt the vibe. I think she will be cool and controlled in her pursuit of HR. It'll be clinical. It might be a rough road for her for a while, but she will have the last laugh when she finally takes them down. I just hope that that happens this season or maybe even by the mid-season finale. Please. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of the HR story arc, so I do hope Carter wraps it up soon. I don't think they can take it much farther. Right. I mean, they're just kind of walking on the edge of kind of going out there with Carter's character. I mean, if they push it and scare us a little bit, that's fine because a lot of shows have a tendency to do that. But I hope the end game is the character kind of becoming, going back to what she was before. Okay. You know, kind of getting rid of HR because that plot line. I'm, I'm done. Yeah, I agree. Give me Elias. Give me Root. Give me, oh, what's his face? Rear. Is that the other guy? Yep. Yeah. Give me that stuff. I agree. I agree. Yep. So with that, we're going to move on to a show that's already kind of been back in full swing. We've been covering it. We're going to go with part two, which I think part one did a good job of hyping things up. I don't know if part two really resolved in the way we thought it would, or at least as epically. But we'll have Nico talk more about that as we covered the Legend of Korra episode, Civil Wars part two. Earth. Fire. Air. Water. Cora's parents are wrongfully incarcerated, so Cora fights to free them. We're going to have Nico lead the section for this week. Dan, I enjoyed this episode and liked where it ended up, but they crammed what probably should have been two episodes worth of Cora-related plot into this single episode. Were you disappointed with the pacing of this episode because it felt overly rushed, or were you okay with it? I felt like this story arc would have benefited from being a three-parter rather than a two-parter that it was. I think maybe they should have put off freeing Korra's dad. Like, they should have kind of left him in prison, kind of like they did with Katara and Sokka's dad. Okay. When he got arrested. Got part of the season or part of the quest was to save him as well. 
Can they still have the war happen? Can this See, episode start? I agree. I think that this episode should have ended when she learned the truth about her uncle. Yeah. And then the entire next episode would have been about the breakout confronting him, okay. getting her father, realizing he wasn't in the prison anymore, and then going to save him. So exactly what was the second half of this episode could have been better done in a, an entire episode itself. I feel like they want to get her on a quest. You know, they want to get her out of the ice kingdom and they want to get her going to the main wherever the president is. or Which is exactly what they did at the end of this episode. And you're absolutely yeah. right. I think that that could have waited till the end of episode five. Right. Well, and I think we need to get back with Tenzin and some of that stuff. Yeah. So I think they need to get her out of the South Pole to do a lot of those things. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Now, Dan, you've been a big fan of the return to a better comedy for this show with the Bolin leading that charge. But this week, the best comedic moments revolved around Varric. Varric was great. Yeah, just how great was Varric in that platypus yeah. bear costume? Great stuff. Naturally, this simple but hilarious plot device made for some great visual moments throughout the episode. And as juvenile as it was, one of my favorite bits was when Varric told Bolin that he had a little something for him round back, followed by a stack of bills popping out of the bear rear end and later in the episode a callback to that where Varric had his assistant poop out money to get the guards out of the way and them onto the ship to escape. While this could be considered some of that potty humor I usually complain about, it was incorporated into this episode, into this great platypus bear costume part of this episode so well that it worked. Another funny moment was when they sailed through the blockade and the northern tribe lookout seeing Bolin yeah. and the platypus bear Varric steering the ship through the blockade. He's like, uh, sir, you, you gotta see this. <laughs> Good stuff. So, Dan, what were the funniest moments of this episode for you and did you enjoy the Varric comedy as much as I did? Well, the one joke, and it was actually kind of dirty, was Varric having his assistant in the platypus bear costume with him. Get her pouring the tea and stuff for him. That was hilarious. And that's why you could buy the poop joke after that, because the first joke was kind of adult-related. And the second one, of course, was really juvenile. Guy probably had kids laughing pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. And Varric is great. All the scenes we've seen of him, where it's designed for him to be comedic, oh my god, that's great. Yeah. And the bear driving the ship, that's a classic joke from a lot of comedy films. Oh, sure. It's classic comedy. God, I really liked it. It really uh, really fits the time period of that Charlie Chaplin kind of humor, which the show takes place in. So I think it fits really well. It's very tasteful for the time period that Cora, the show exists in. Yeah. You know, if this were a sitcom, the guy would have looked at his drink, poured yeah. it out, and like shook his head or something like that, you know, and just... Take a double take, look at his drink like, what have I been drinking? And pour it out, you know? It's that kind of classic comedic moment. And that was what made it so much fun here. Well, and I think this episode had a lot of family sitcom stuff in it. Yeah. As well. So, Dan, Cora is not Aang and goes about oh, yeah. being the Avatar in a much different way than he did. With Korra's father behind bars, this triggered one of the most reckless slash exciting sequences from this episode, and that was Korra going all Jack Bauer on Judge Hotot. This was a perfect example of how Korra's method can differ from Avatar Aang's, while still yielding essentially the same results. That's not to say her negotiation tactics were not extremely reckless, but they were definitely effective too. Specifically, I'm thinking of Korra's line to Hota after Naga ripped off the door. Okay. It's not about what I want. It's about what Naga wants. <laughs> and her shoving Hota's head into Naga's open mouth. Such a badass moment, but also shows her need to mature still. I agree. 
After the interrogation, of course, we finally learned the truth. Not only did Umak rig the trial, but he also set up Torak's banishment so that he could become the chief. Dan, were you a bit disappointed that Umak turned out to be as corrupt and power-hungry as we expected, especially since they were laying it on pretty thick with the sinister vibes? I would have preferred maybe to learn that Umak's motives were based in a, a more form of the greater good rather than petty jealousy, but it was good to see Cora finally taking a stand against her uncle's manipulative ways. What, what were your thoughts, Dan? I'm glad Cora got to see through it. Yeah. Got found out on her own, so she didn't look stupid. Right. Because I felt like that would have been the same thing that happened last season again. Right. And so she needed to learn from that show that she had evolved. The way she handled it was quite violent, but teenage girls kind of get angry at times. So I thought that fit perfectly with her going after Naga and stuff like that. Could also, again, it makes her different than Aang. Because I think we need that. I, I don't think you want to see the same show over again. Right, exactly. The other thing is Unlak, the fact we found out so early that he's bad makes me feel like they're still going to need him. Like, I have a feeling they're still going to need Unlak to stop the spirits. Okay. okay. Maybe we'll see a redemption of Unlak from that. But something's going to happen where they realize that he's still going to need himself. I think he is right to that point. Okay. That That's my thought. And, and really this show, I think... I think with the message they gave in Tenzin's story, Kyle family, you know, they have their issues, but they can work it out. I think that's what we may see with Umlak. Because again, this show's message always has been, in both series, I think, is peace. Got finding the peaceful way of solving things. Sure. And I think the brothers working it out, or maybe sacrificing themselves for each other, something like that, would be really cool. I think it would be a good message. Now, this episode also did an excellent job of utilizing each member of Team Avatar for the I first agree. time this season, particularly towards the end of the episode as the group joined up with Varric to make a daring escape and rescue. I really enjoyed the Firefield airplane stunt led by Korra, Asami, and Mako. That was great well, animation. It was. It really was. I also liked... Korra using the Avatar state to waterbend a giant tsunami. Mm -hmm. As an added bonus, I thought it was great how the whole thing tied into Bolan's forced engagement to Eska, with Asami's advice failing miserably, and I liked how it was Varric's counsel that ultimately prevailed. The only way to deal with crazy women is to lie big and leave fast. That was great, too. <laughs> but unfortunately for Bolin, even that didn't keep her from coming for him in the end. Dan, did you like how the whole team was in on the action this week? It was great to see Asami, who had, like, vanished. Yes. I, I thought that was good to bring her back in. I thought that was good to bring her into things. I liked her trying to help Bolin, kind of give him the advice. Yes. And I think we may see that formed her having feelings or more with the connection that she personally has with Bolin. God, I like Varric kind of being a mentor to Bolin. That could be kind of funny, too. I think there's big potential there, but, again, I do think there's things they need to address, though, with Asami got her friendship or where she stays stands with Korra and Mako. Because I liked how she was there to help them. I just ran into helping them. But I could also see her also being skeptical of wanting to help Korra and Mako as well. Sure. Like, she doesn't really need to. So I think that needs to be addressed a little bit. Why she's still sticking around. Right. Yeah, I think it shows just sort of how good of a friend she is. Right. Because she was hurt really badly by last year's events. Both financially, her father being taken from her, essentially, and 
also the whole situation with Mako. So her still sticking around and being friendly with them and yeah. being a good friend shows strength of her character. And I think Cora needs to acknowledge that at some point. I know she's got a lot on her plate right now, but I do think we might need to see her saying, see her saying hey, look, I did this to you. You don't really need to stick around. Kanasami's saying, look, you know what? Let's let's brush this out of the rug. No hard feelings, you know. You didn't do anything to me. This is just kind of what happened. And Asami, I think, is a big enough character to say, there's bigger things right now than us being upset about these things. Sure. That's the whole world's in danger right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're on the brink of another world war, essentially. Yeah. The Civil War could expand into a world war. Right. Yeah. This week's episode, Civil War Part 2, built on last week's momentum by having Korra finally take a stand against Unlock, as we mentioned. The rest of the team, Avatar, was also put to good use this week, as was Varric in the bear costume, which, yeah, was awesome. Yeah. Probably my favorite part of the episode. Meanwhile, Tenzin and Iki shared a heartwarming scene together as they both came to terms with their respective sibling spats. If it hadn't felt so rushed, I think it would have been a perfect episode. Dan, any final thoughts about this before we wrap it up? I think the baby bison were right up there with the bear costume. <laughs> okay. I like the baby bison and the names that Iki gave them. Yeah. That was just a lot of fun. And, and the scene with Tenzin, that was just heartwarming. I mean, it just made you feel warm and fuzzy inside and smile. It really did. And, and I liked how the father connected with the daughter through them having the exact same problem. Right. That was very cool. God, it was just a nice moment. God, my mom had happened to be in the room watching the episode because she knows nothing about Legend of Korra. But she heard the scene in the background she's like, oh wow, that's really nice. Uh-huh. It's a great way how they connect that way. Yeah. So somebody that didn't even know anything about the show picked up on it and thought that was really clever. So, great job writers on that one. I, I really have to give them credit for that. This is a great show that adults could sit down with their kids and appreciate and really get something out of it on both levels. Because that's a very challenging thing to do because I think this show does it fantastically I agree yeah so I think that's we're going to end it on that if that's cool with you yeah I think it's about time to move into our new sitcom section right exactly and I think this week we're going to kick it off with Wu giving us his thoughts on the How I Met Your Mother first and second episode The Locket and Coming Back On their way to Long Island for their wedding weekend, Robin and Barney come across a startling family discovery. Meanwhile, Marshall sees something online that changes the course of his... I guess they didn't want to reveal it. (laughs) Robin is concerned about how Barney will take bad news about his brother, while Marshall scrambles to find transportation to the wedding, and an uncomfortable Ted deals with flying solo in a romantic hotel. So take it away, Woo! Hey everybody! I have a lot to say, of course, about the final season of I Am But Your Mother. I've been watching this show ever since the beginning of season four I caught up the last three years via DVD and I've been watching this show ever since I have mixed feelings towards the end of How I Met Your Mother of course I'm happy we're at the end of the road but we're at the end of the road first of all one thing I was very trepidatious about and if you heard our San Diego Comic Con episode you heard my trepidations about spreading this entire ninth season over the weekend of Robin and Barney's wedding I wasn't on board with it at first, now I'm on board with it. The way Carter Bass and Craig Thomas wrote The Locket and Going Back, which is the titles of the, part one and part two of this season opener, I, I hope they keep this format going. I hope they can do more with this format because it's like watching a film or watching the, 
you know, kind of like a Quentin Tarantino Pulp Fiction kind of thing, where you see stuff that you normally wouldn't have seen in the first eight years. I loved how how they, you know, had characters have scenes together that really didn't have scenes together, like James James Stinson and Ted Mosby. I really liked that scene. I liked how, you know, like sit-down scenes that we wouldn't have normally seen in the first eight years, like Lily, Ted, Robin and, Robin and Barney and James, like sitting down having brunch. You wouldn't normally have seen that in the first eight years of the show. I really like that. I really like how... They can flash back, they can flash back and forth, but it doesn't seem out of place. It doesn't seem, you know, different from the show we've been watching for eight years. I I really like this storyline between Sherry Shepard and Jason Siegel. I love the interactions between Daphne and Marshall because it's very interesting, again, to play for Jason Siegel, I would think. So, being that he, his storyline is almost entirely separate to what's going on in the wedding. Because remember, Ted meeting his wife, which I'll get into later, of course, that is related to Robin and Barney's wedding. You know, Robin and Barney, of course, have their stake in this this weekend because it is their wedding. But Marshall, he has something involved with the wedding, of course, he wants to get back. But he also has to deal with what is he going to tell Lily when he actually gets back gets back to New York. I really loved the um, man without a country feeling that Marshall was going through for the entire episode until Sherry Shepard came back with the, um, I'm just going to call it the mini hybrid. It's going to be really interesting to see what those two characters are going to do on their way back to New York. I love the interactions between Robin and Barney within these last two episodes because with them finding out they might be related, with um, Robin and Barney finding out that James, that James might be getting a divorce, with that he, well, I'm sorry, that he is getting a divorce, with you know the difficulty that both of them have had in maintaining a relationship, and they have the coldest of cold feet of anyone on the series of Getting Married. I really love their interactions. I love how Kobe Smulders and Neil Patrick Harris are playing this because it seems out of all the most outrageous things and How Much Your Mother has done very outrageous things with both Robin and Barney, you see how real they can be when they're talking about their relationship or getting through some hard times, especially Robin and Barney talking in the lobby after they find out James is getting a divorce. I really loved the whole inter the whole thing with Lily and her drinking in this episode. I think there's always been kind of like a like a, a crutch for Lily. When in doubt, drink drink your problems away. I loved and I counted. It was five glasses that Lily got from that bartender outside when she was with Ted. I and I know you guys are probably wondering when is when is Wu gonna get to the main event? I love Kristen Milioti. I said I really liked her in the the season finale of last season. I really loved her interactions with Allison Hannigan. I loved the whole thing with her cookies, the quote some bitches. I loved that name. I loved how 
in just one dialogue, just one dialogue, you understood when we first meet her, that first dialogue with Krista Milioti, you understood why Ted Mosby loves this woman and will always love her with all his heart, just with that one dialogue scene. I loved the... The reason why I love the interactions between Allison Hannigan and Krista Milioti, other than the obvious of... Other than the obvious thing, of course, they, they're going to be, quote-unquote, like, sister-in-laws in the future. It's It didn't seem out of place. It felt so natural that it wouldn't... It would have made total sense to me if this character had been friends with, like, our main cast for the last eight years. And I think that's why the executive producers hired this actress, of course, because she has such natural chemistry with... Allison Hannigan, she had such natural natural chemistry with Josh Rander in the Flash Forward, and I won't I won't lie, I I'll be completely honest with you guys. The scene of the Flash Forward of of Kristen Milioti and Josh Rander one year in the future, and I'm assuming if they're not engaged, they're going to be soon. Just the looks that they give to each other, just the heartfelt dialogue between the, these two. I literally got tears in my eyes just because I've been waiting for this, for this couple for, you know, eight years, almost a decade now. So to actually see, see it through, see it through, and we're going to spend time with this couple this season, I'm really looking forward to it, and that's actually kind of dulling my my kind of sadness away that this is the last season because Ted finally gets his woman and we finally get to get to know the mother more. One last thing before I before I go and that is all the freaking callbacks to more episodes than I can count of just all the callbacks to previous seasons. I'll only name a couple a couple that probably some of you have missed the It's For The Bride thing is a callback to Season 2 of How I Met Your Mother during Marshall and, Marshall and Liz's wedding. I loved Ted, <coughs> excuse me, Ted saying hey beautiful to his, to the mother because that is the theme song of How I Met Your Mother that you hear at the beginning of every episode. Again, again, and I'm sorry if I'm, ram if I'm rambling. I am. I cannot wait to see more of this season. I cannot wait to get this show on DVD, which is like the first time ever I've said that after watching a premiere. That I cannot wait to get the DVD, just because I know there are going to be so many good special features. Seeing that this is the last season, I'm gonna do this every week, or I'm gonna really try to, because I love this series. I love Ted Mosby. I love the fact that we're finally meeting the mother. I love that we're going to see more of these characters in different ways than we ever had before. Let's take it back to Dan and Nico. See you next week. Bye, guys. All right. Well, Wu's voicemail was really great and insightful. God, he's touched upon probably what I'm going to say, but I want to say it anyway because this is a great show, and I really was pleased with the episode. God, there's a lot of people out there that want to have their own Linus. Got to pour them drinks all the time. <laughs> that's a big thing for this episode. So I want to give credit to that, but again, that's not the most important things with the episode. 
I think the most important thing and the most thing I was most pleased with as they addressed something that I thought was very important for the show to do before it ended was to show why all the other characters accepted the mother or appreciated the mother. Got a big character to sell me on that concept or for that concept to work was Lily with her whole back porch theory. Yep. If you remember that episode. Mm-hmm. And I think this episode did, was very important, which was show how the mother passed that test. Yep. God, this scene was perfect. Got a lot of people mentioned to me how they felt with the way that scene was handled that the mother is a cross between Robin and Lily. The cookies, the baking cookies, felt like a Lily thing. God, the some bitches thing, the name of the cookies, that was totally Robin. So that was the kind of the pickup on that. So I thought that was really well done. And the first scene that we've seen between Ted and the mother was great. God, it proved that it was great casting of the mother. I really think it did. Yeah, that the was what I wanted to say. they were together was just beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. She was the perfect choice for this character and that was proven in this episode she just played everything exactly like i wanted to see i loved this introduction yes we saw her at the end of the last season finale but this was her introduction to the series and she passed she passed with flying colors right the whole show depended on that and they passed yeah and i'm very proud of that i've so happy. I mean, we've waited nine years to know about this. And the fact that it paid off, awesome. Yep. Awesome. And this show, I mean, it's going to get all the credit in the world now because it did it. Yep. So, just great. It great. It's, it makes this season so much more enjoyable now that we kind of have that out of the way. And I think it's going to make us appreciate everything that's to come. It's a great job, guys, really, honestly. That's why I got to say something because I just feel like they need to get all of our staff of approval. Uh, woo you, Nico, and, and myself. Yep. So, with that, we're going to move on to talking about Modern Family. And for this week, our sitcoms, the returning sitcoms especially, big veteran ones came back with two episodes. So we're going to have two episodes of Modern Family to talk about, too. I mean, really, they wanted to get us excited about our new uh, favorite veteran shows coming back. So, here, let's talk about Modern Family. Yeah, with the episodes Suddenly Last Summer yeah. and First Days. The Pritchett clan's end-of-summer shenanigans include Phil and Claire trying to line up their kids' activities to have some time alone, and Jay and Gloria helping Manny get ready for his first solo trip to Columbia. Meanwhile, Mitchell and Cameron make it a season to remember. Luke and Manny start high school, and Claire goes to work at Jay's company. Meanwhile, Cameron becomes a substitute teacher, which means Mitchell has to get Lily ready for preschool on the day of an important meeting at work. And that was the summary for both episodes. Yep. Just so you guys can follow that. And uh, this week's premiere episodes of Modern Family were so strong coming out of the gate. It was hard for me to narrow things down to a favorite comedic moment for most episodes. So here's me taking my best shot at it. With the first episode, my favorite comedic moment came down to one scene, got a recurring gag. The scene was Manny expressing his concerns to Jay about going to Columbia while they were at the state office, being taken as they were getting married instead of getting Manny's passport. Got the recurring gag, which was Baby Joe throwing up every time the concept or the topic of gay marriage was brought up. I guess that makes him Jay's son. At the same time, regardless of your status on gay marriage, I thought the scene where Kevin Mitchell proposed to each other over over fixing a flat tire was really well done. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this first episode? Dan, my favorite comedic moment was Luke's girlfriend and how she was the perfect girl for Luke and everything that Phil loves. (laughs) Phil says, never let her go. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, Phil had a good line for that scene, yes. Yeah. I just love she was doing magic after doing tumbling and (laughs) 
<laughs> Gave him the movie Dirty Dancing. Good stuff. Yes. Okay, as for the second episode, my favorite comedic moment was a toss-up between Cam teaching a high school history AP class along with coaching high school football dressed as George Washington and Gloria and Phil being extras at a reverse mortgage commercial. The way they handled that was pretty funny. Because Phil went a little over the top. So you gotta love it. So Nico, what made you chuckle during this episode of Modern Family? Because in the second episode. Dan, my favorite comedic moment was everything between Phil and Luke and how their relationship is changing and yet staying the same as Luke heads off to high school. From the start with Luke saying, I'm in high school now. Spray it directly in my mouth. Dad, I'm in high school now. Just put it in my mouth. About the whipped cream on his pancakes to Luke using his dad's advice about paying each person he meets a compliment. There it is. There's that smile. (laughs) (laughs) Luke is still the best character of this show, in my opinion, and the Phil and Luke dynamic makes this show for me each week. But I did enjoy seeing Cam coach football in the George Washington costume, especially with the ads he's doing during college football on Saturdays. That just makes it even more fun. That was very fun. The Phil and Luke relationship got a little interesting in this episode, uh, where Luke kind of blew him off a little bit. Yeah, but in the end... I was like, oh no! In the end, it all came together, yeah. Once they worked out in the end, I'm like, oh, that's good. Yeah. But but that was hard for me to watch. That was crushing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and it really hit Phil hard, as you saw in the the extra scene. But... Yeah, it was it was well done, and I think it's this season's going to be good again. I think yes, I agree. I really think this season's going to be good, and I think when we kind of came to that consensus, kind of look at this show as a dramedy. I think that helped us a lot. Yeah. Okay, especially appreciate the second half of last season. Yep. And now, in talking about the straight up comedy show that's returning, I'm a little skeptical about this season. I. It was it was funny, but I'm just getting a little nervous. We're gonna lose some thunder here again. It is season seven, so this has been on for a while. So I could see this coming, having some issues. So let's talk about the episodes of The Big Bang Theory, the Hofstetter insufficiency, and the deception verification. All started with the Big Bang. The first episode, Sheldon and Penny share intimate secrets while Leonard is away at sea. In the second episode, Leonard returns from his North Sea expedition and finds things chilly between him and Sheldon, while Howard's relationship with his mother opens the doors to questions about his masculinity. The premiere episodes of The Big Bang Theory were good, but for some reason gave me the vibe that reaching season 7 is going to cause this show to run out of steam. Can I guess there will be more or less explanation on that as our reviews continue for the year? Anyway, in the first episode, my favorite comedic moment was the reveal of Penny having a topless scene in a really bad horror movie called Serial Apist. Got the payoff of Leonard showing it off to his friends on the boat during Stephen Hawking's expedition. Also with this first episode, I was disappointed to hear that Raj had broken up with Lucy because we both had liked the direction the story was going. But maybe it'll turn around. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this first episode? Yeah, Dan, remember we saw that breakup in the finale last season, which is what compelled him to be able to talk to women without alcohol. But Kate Micucci will be back later this season, so there is that to look forward to. Okay, so that's all get resolved or addressed. Well, we don't know. We just know that she's going to be back later in this season. Okay. As for this episode, I was not that excited by this episode and really struggled coming up with my favorite comedic moment. I was with you. Because it really was not that funny of an episode for me anyway. But I guess my favorite comedic moment would have to be the Kraken scene from the very opening sequence. Just the whole dream sequence that, you know, Sheldon was having that he would call Leonard and be on the phone and only concerned about the DVDs being in the wrong cases while Leonard's being attacked by a Kraken. It kind of fit the series. Guys still like the time travel dream better. Yeah. That 
That's outstanding. And with the second episode, which I thought was a funnier episode, the first one I really struggled finding a funny moment too. It was just kind of an episode of the Big Bang Theory with nothing really special. But uh, the second one was my, my favorite comedic moment was Coward asking Raj if his boobs were getting bigger. Got all the hilarity that ensued after that. I think it would be weird if I tried to describe it, so just go with that. Nico, what was funny to you in this episode? And did you also kind of pick up on my vibe? I mentioned earlier of it feeling like the Big Bang Theory is, I guess, either going to run out of steam or is running out of steam. Yeah, Dan, my favorite moment was also the Howard and Raj scene where they were measuring each other's boobs. It was great. Yeah. I'm not worried about this show yet losing steam because I feel like it is still fun, funny, and while the first episode of this week was short on the laughs, the second more than made up for that, and I think it still makes me laugh more often than not. So I'm not too we're worried okay. about it yet. Yeah, I think we're okay. All right, yeah, it, it, it was, I just, I guess that first episode out of the gate. Yeah, it, it was, it's tough. If it was the only one we saw this week, it would have been a lot different. Yeah. We would have been a lot more upset about it. But because we got the two of them and the second one was really funny, yeah. I think it ended up being okay. Maybe that's why CBS did it this way. You know, I'm pretty sure that that had something to do with it. They want Big Bang Theory to succeed. Oh, absolutely. So they're going to do whatever they need to to make that happen. I think that's what they did. Yep. All right, so now we're going to go in the rundown section now. Sci-Fi's Pope for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know trauma. Okay, we're going to be firing off stuff now. <laughs> we're just going to be shooting through shows. So yeah. we're going to real quickly go through pilots and second episodes. Yep. Well. And we're going to kick it off with Sleepy Hollow this week with the second episode, Blood Moon. While still adjusting to his 21st century reality, Ichabod got Abby continue on their quest to clear up Sleepy Hollow's mysteries. After a vision from Katrina, the two set out to look for a witch from the 1700s. The witch has been awakened, got his intent on destroying Sleepy Hollow. Despite what happened to him, Andy Brooks is back, got pursuing his own agenda. A truly great pilot guarantees nothing. Plenty of shows have come storming out of the gates only to fall off a cliff once it's time to move forward. Whether because the director leaves or the crunch of lower budget and tighter schedule is felt, or the writers simply have nothing left in the tank after the initial hour. So how did episode 2 of Sleepy Hollow stand up to the amazing pilot? Actually very well. This week's episode, Blood Moon, jumped right in where last week left off after a very brief recounting of what transpired last week. It was more focused and less jam-packed than the premiere, which had a lot to do in a relatively short amount of time to do it. The centralized, standalone story that fits like a puzzle piece into the larger season-long arc is probably what future episodes of Sleepy Hollow will be like. It's similar to Supernatural and other genre shows in that way, and that's definitely not a bad thing. If it risks becoming too serialized, it could lose viewers who fall behind, or it could keep new viewers from jumping in midway through. If it becomes too much of a procedural where Abby and Ichabod run around Sleepy Hollow solving random crimes and with no larger purpose, the series risks losing viewers who want character development and serialized storytelling rather than just filler plots. This episode proved that the series can do a mixture of the two and still remain highly entertaining, even if a bit ridiculous. This episode also answered the question of how the series would tackle cases of the week, the horseman's present, and the secret history of the United States every week, and the answer was simple. It's not going to. 
The case of the week was provided by Katrina, which was to track down and destroy the remains of a witch who was burned at the stake before she could return and set off a chain reaction of evil, or something to that effect. But before Abby and Ichabod could do that, that scary demon thing that scared the bejesus out of all of us in the pilot brought evil John Cho back to life and gave us a scene even better than the next snapping scene from the last week. Speaking of John Cho, all the evil Cho stuff was terrific, from the security footage of Andy's suicide, to the gallows humor of him stumbling around the morgue, to that ugly waddle in his neck as he ran errands around town. In fact, the makeup and special effects were also great, just enough to be disturbing without overwhelming the story. I was a little disappointed but not shocked in the least when both Clancy Brown and John Cho were dispatched in the pilot. So having them both show up again was a welcome surprise in episode 2 and it looks like Andy's not done causing trouble yet so we'll see even more of John Cho. I expect Abby and Ichabod are going to need more than just Ghost Sheriff and Ghost Witchwife as allies but for now I'm all in favor of an excuse to have Brown on the show. The father-daughter relationship he and Abby have feels so easy and lived in and gives these first two episodes a deeper emotional foundation than Ichabod's visions of his wife have so far. But the sheriff really is dead. But that didn't stop Abby from chatting him up in his office where he offered her this advice. Don't be afraid of number 49. That's where you'll find you're not alone. Number 49, of course, meant room 49, the room in which Abby's sister Jennifer Mills lives at the local nut house. And the creepy demon guy is coming for her, which is most definitely not a good sign, but it does make for some interesting mystery development. This episode was more streamlined and less crazy than the premiere, but it still had the elements that made the pilot so great. The easy chemistry and banter between Abby and Ichabod continued, Ichabod's confusion regarding modern technology, and also a funny outrage at the donut tax, was still funny. There was plenty of supernatural hijinks to go around and some truly startling moments to keep us on our toes. If the show keeps up this pace, solving immediate threats to thwart the larger threat of the apocalypse while also building and diving deeper into the supernatural world, I can see it having a pretty good run. Each week, I'm growing more and more fond of this show. Moving on, Hostages had a pilot episode this week that was actually quite interesting and surprised me and made me much more interested in this series, much like Sleepy Hollow did last week. Okay. So we're going to talk about the pilot episode of Hostages. Dr. Ellen Sanders and her family are taken hostage by a rogue FBI agent who threatens to kill them. If she doesn't kill the president in an upcoming surgery, she will be performing on him. With the success of Under the Dome, with its cable-style shorter season and serialized storylines, CBS learned that the risky, off-brand programming move could pay off. Now, however, they're trying the shorter season limited run thing in the fall with a crime conspiracy story more traditionally up CBS viewers' alley. Hostages is from Day After Tomorrow writer Jeffrey Nakadoff and based apparently on an Israeli TV series idea that still hasn't been produced. Looks and feels like the kind of movie that would have been a hit for Harrison Ford in the 90s a la The Fugitive and a flop for him in the 2000s like Firewall. Tony Collette plays Dr. Ellen Sanders, a top-of-her-field surgeon handpicked by the president to perform a simple but necessary procedure to remove a non-malignant mass from his lung. Why did he pick her? To win over women voters, of course. 
Anyhow, this first episode works at breakneck pace, giving us a quick series of short scenes introducing us to all the players. As I mentioned, you can easily imagine the score to The Fugitive playing in the background during most of these scenes, especially once Dylan McDermott enters the mix as a gruff, tough turncoat FBI agent named Carlisle. The first time we see Carlisle, he thwarts a hostage situation at a bank by, you guessed it, breaking the rules and going with his gut. But despite there not being all that much to Carlisle and him feeling like a shadow of a shadow of a character you've seen many times before, he's still the most interesting part of the series. And unfortunately for Ellen and her family, the most likable. Which is a problem because Carlisle turns out to be part of a major plot to kill the president by taking Ellen's family hostage, thus forcing her to let the leader of the free world die on her operating table. Originally designed to be a twist, I'm sure Carlisle being the hostage taker was readily revealed in every and all trailers for the show. Thanks marketing department for that one. Much of the early criticism of hostages has focused on how the narrative will stretch across 15 episodes per season, or multiple seasons even. However, that doesn't necessarily worry me. There are tons of shows that, when they began, faced big questions about how they could possibly sustain their premise. Lost and 24 immediately come to mind. The thing is, good shows overcome those questions with solid storytelling that makes you forget about the potential lifespan of the plot. As I said, this show does not worry me mainly because I've heard that it intends to use the American Horror Story method of having each season self-contained within the same world as the other seasons. Hostages could become one of those shows that overcomes these questions about it by the end of its first season. But right now, the future isn't the problem, it's the present. This pilot episode didn't waste any time establishing the hostage situation and the clear stakes involving Dr. Ellen Sanders, her family, and the president. However, none of the characters seemed especially interesting here, which means it was really easy to start asking questions about all those things hostages doesn't want us to ask questions about. How is this a show? What does episode 7 look like? How does this show fill an entire season, let alone multiple season run? Even early on, it seems like Hostages is at war with itself. The pilot wasted absolutely no time jumping into the proverbial hostage situation and pushing Ellen towards making hard choices, which suggests that writer-director Jeffrey Nakamoff knows that this is a show that needs to keep the story moving along with enough twists and turns to keep the audience entertained, but not necessarily thinking about the logistics of any one decision or maneuver. And I think that intuition on his part is correct. However long this show Hostages lasts, it's never going to be a serious drama. To succeed, it must embrace the inherent silliness of the concept and probably ramp it all up to 11. I'll give this show the five-episode smell test and review those episodes here, but after episode five, if this show has not shown marked improvement, answered a few of those questions, and sparked some serious interest in the series, I will most likely drop it from the ATA weekly ranks. Let me know what you thought of this show and how you think it can work these issues out going forward. Now we're going to move on to a pilot that maybe wasn't of the same quality as those previously talked about. We're going to talk about the Moms pilot episode. sober single mom Christy gets challenged when her estranged, overly critical mother returns to her life to the series premiere of this comedy from executive producer Chuck Lorre. It seems like most of Chuck Lorre's sitcoms these days are buried under a whole lot of crazy sex jokes and you wouldn't be wrong to describe the new CBS comedy Mom that way either. But beneath the easy zingers about cavity searches and lying about your virginity status to the woman who washes your sheets, yeah, that was a serious joke in this episode, there's a supposed comedy here. Mom is definitely not the best 
best new comedy of the season. But it isn't the worst. Uh, Back in the Game and Super Fun Night, anyone? And this is going to sound completely insane, but I'm not sure the pilot needed to be super hilarious to succeed. Allison Janney and Anna Ferris play mother and daughter, and putting aside the crazy idea that Janney could possibly have a grown daughter with teenage children of her own, the pair's relationship is the only thing worth watching here. Mom may be successful going forward because it captures that mother-daughter relationship and tries to have heart. So yeah, Mom's humor isn't laugh-out-loud funny, and some of it falls pretty flat, but Janie and Ferris anchor the series well enough, and they're believable as mother-daughter duo where the daughter has a firmer grasp on reality than the old lady. And considering the amount of parent-related humor in the new slate of fall comedies, see also Dads and soon The Millers, this one is so far the best of the bunch. It doesn't employ racial humor, and there isn't a fart joke in sight so already mom has a leg up on the competition unfortunately i don't really see this or dad's making it past season one and i'll have to update that when the millers comes out to any of the three making it so this will be the last review here on ata's rundown section unless i hear from some of you about it in the voicemail section calling for us to continue coverage as i said this was not as good as the other pilots that we've been praising it did have a lot of celebrity show up but that couldn't save it in my book no, it was just a standard sitcom kind of thing. Yeah. Nothing special. Now let's move on to a show that did actually have a good pilot, The Blacklist, with the episode Pilot. Raymond Red Reddington, a wanted FBI fugitive, starts working for the Bureau. He will only ask for one condition, to speak only to profiler Elizabeth Kate. I thought James Spader played his character, Raymond Red Reddington, great. I think, as I said before, someone like Enrico Colantoni plays a manipulative villain much better on Person of Interest as Elias. But I thought he did it pretty well. I want to learn more about him, got the mystery behind him, even though I think I figured some of it out, especially in his connection to Elizabeth Keene, because then I think that's his daughter or someone he's related to somehow. But the whole deal with her husband and some of that stuff and the little girl getting kidnapped kind of came across as a little too intense, because the idea that nothing is sacred here, that things are just going to get over the top worse for this Elizabeth Keene character. And I'm a little nervous that's going to lead to the problems that the firm had. That was another NBC show. Show, where it was like this guy was a lawyer and everything happened. His wife went crazy. His family tried to get kidnapped. He had assassins coming to his home. He's framed for murder. He's all his stuff. And I'm a little worried that's going to happen to this Elizabeth Keene character. Also, she seems to be going in the opposite direction as other popular female leads. You know, we had Kate Beckett and Bones and Columbia Dunham and some of the big ones we've covered on this show. And they all became kind of more personable as the show went on and, and developed into characters that had rich lives. Or Especially something to fight for or someone to love. And Elizabeth Keene seems to be a character that's going to go the other way. At the beginning of the show, she seemed very personable and happy and perky and kind of laughing at stuff. And now I kind of see her becoming really dark. So I don't know if audiences are going to like that. I, like, I think they like people who have something to look forward to or fight for instead of go backwards. But that's just my opinion. Again, it was a good pilot. But if you like intense stuff, like a, a Homeland or I guess what Hostages is or whatever, check out The Blacklist. If you want something a little more lighthearted but exciting, check out Castle, which is out at the same time. So that's what I got to say about The Blacklist. Yeah, good stuff, Dan. So master criminal Raymond Red Reddington has a daughter who he abandoned. And rookie FBI agent Elizabeth Keene was abandoned by her criminal father. There'd better be more to the big secret of NBC's new thriller, The Blacklist, than Reed wanting to work with Keene because she's his kid. Because if there isn't, the rest of the blacklist isn't going to make the show a must-see drama week in and week out. 
I don't know whether Keen is, in fact, Red's daughter, and for the sake of everything we hold dear in television, she'd better not be. But once that thought entered my mind, which happened sometime during the first trailer that NBC released this year, it was hard to see their relationship any other way. It can't be this obvious, can it? Either it's the worst-kept secret of the new fall season, or the Blacklist has some big surprise up its sleeve, which is what I'm really hoping for in this case. Putting all that aside, however, The Blacklist is still a pretty decent little show by NBC's plummeting standards, and the network is really hoping that the James Spader-starring drama will end its scripted series Cold Street. It probably won't, but it is a much better chance of success than any other new NBC drama this season, although the new Dracula may surprise me still. Spader is master criminal Red Reddington, a most wanted man who surrendered to the FBI and offers to help them catch other crooks who all appear on his so-called blacklist. The gimmick is that he'll only work with FBI profiler Elizabeth Keene, played by Megan Boone, who's so new to the agency the pilot took place on her first day as a new FBI profiler, not her first day as an agent as some people have misunderstood about her. From there, a fairly standard procedural flirted with serialized elements while Red helped Keen hunt down a potential terrorist named Zamani. Or did he help the terrorist almost realize a plan to bomb Washington, D.C. with a chemical weapon? Or was he using the terrorist to facilitate his own nefarious plan, which somehow involves Keen and her husband? It's all a little foggy so far, and I'm still hoping in a rewarding way with something special up the show's sleeve that surprises us and turns this show into something special. After the standard pilot introductions, things got a little muddled, particularly in the second half of the episode. Red escaped the heavily manned FBI watch by climbing out a hospital window and had a friendly chat with the terrorist Zamani and confirmed that Zamani had nearly killed Keen's husband at Red's request, led the FBI to Zamani by planting his own tracking device on him, and then helped defuse Zamani's chemical weapon bomb, which had been strapped to the kidnapped daughter of a U.S. general. Oh, and did I mention that the reason Red was in the hospital was that Keen stabbed him in the neck with a pen? Yeah. The only thing I can assume is that Red pretended to be chummy with Zumani in order to get more information on the nature of the attack and then use that information to help Keen save the day. We still don't know what the hell Red is up to, whose side he's on, or why he did anything that he did aside from bleeding when he got stabbed, obviously. But maybe that's the point of both the character and the blacklist. Red is a free agent who can still mix it up in the criminal world because the bad guys don't know he's working with the FBI. I'm not sure the pilot pulled off its attempt to pique our curiosity as well as it could have. It might have been more successful had Red ever fooled us into believing in him or gave us a reason to definitely hate him. But he started off somewhat untrustworthy and remained somewhat untrustworthy rather than convincing us to commit to an opinion of him and then flipping our expectations. There just wasn't much surprise from him yet anyway. And maybe that is coming. This episode was successful in giving me interested enough to watch again next week and continue to cover the show in the rundown section. All right, we'll move on to Brooklyn Nine-Nine with last week's pilot and this week's second episode.
Detective Jake Peralta's life changes when his precinct gets a new captain. Jake is late for work and gets assigned to a low-level case. Of the single-camera comedies this season, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is the one with the most potential to develop into a legitimately funny series and secure its place in our regular scheduled appointment television. The premise is pretty straightforward. A gifted but childish detective, played by Andy Samberg, and his wacky group of colleagues and cohorts get a new captain, played by Andre Brower, who wants to whip them into a respectable team. Simple enough, but rather than acting as a detractor, the clarity of the concept works in the show's favor. The pilot does a solid job of establishing the tone, characters, relationships, and basic setup of the series. We are given to understand that no crime, not even murder, will be taken entirely seriously. It's a good thing, too, because it's going to take many viewers a moment, or several, to get on board with Sandberg as ace detective Jake Peralta. The actor does a wonderful job of capturing the essence of the too-smart-for-his-own-good class clown here, rather than falling back into his more over-the-top characters from his SNL days. The pilot did an excellent job of setting up the characters, the premise and the conflicts, everything you expect in a pilot episode. The second episode continued along the same lines as the pilot and was enjoyable without any real new developments. I'm going to continue to watch this show, and Dan and I are probably going to continue to cover it here in the rundown section. All right, now we're going to move on to a favorite of mine every week, the comedy New Girl with the episode Nerd. Jess asks Nick for advice on how to deal with a group of caddy teachers. Got her new school. Elsewhere, Schmidt suffers through an office party. Got Winston seeks revenge on Daisy, who he suspects is cheating on him. After last week's season premiere, we discussed New Girl's unique ability to feature standard sitcom stories that have been done a bazillion times before, like Schmidt's dual dating of Cece and Elizabeth, without being stale and horrible and unwatchable. That trend continued this week in Nerd when Jess ran afoul of a cliche workplace click. Schmidt continued to date both Elizabeth and Cece, and Winston contemplated the best way to kill a cat. Okay, so Winston's story was actually pretty unique, all things considered. I mean, let's just take a moment to appreciate the fact that a third of this week's episode was dedicated to watching a protagonist try to kill a cheating girlfriend's pet. It doesn't matter that in the end Winston decided to let Ferguson live, like we mostly figured he would. The intent was there. Winston's kind of creepy, and it's awesome. And I loved the evolution of his character over the last half of season two and now continuing here in season three. Meanwhile, Jess and Nick's storyline managed to feel rather vintage New Girl by walking the line between being a Nick and Jess story and being a Nick slash Jess story. Jess's struggle to fit in with the cool teachers at her new school and Nick's semi-disastrous attempts to be her coolness guru could have easily have been a season two story. The romantic aspect of the relationship wasn't essential to that story, which is a very good thing going forward. As characters, Jess and Nick are still full of potential stories that don't hinge on their relationship insecurities or making out in the backseat of the car. Nick didn't try to help Jess because she's his girlfriend, but rather because she's his friend. He cares about her, but these two characters cared about about each other long before New Girl's writers went and made them an official thing. Schmidt's irritating girlfriend exploits also continued this week as he scheduled a two-timer date with Cece and Elizabeth. Yeah, 
I know. While the office party resulted in a predictable display of Schmidt running back and forth between the two women, there was, to this episode's credit, a twist ending in that he actually pulled it off, even after Cece and Elizabeth met face to face. What's annoying about that, though, is Schmidt is now only prolonging the inevitable fallout. I'd rather him just be done with it so we can move on from this string of obviously poor decisions. And let's be real, Cece wins in the end. So in the end, this week's episode was a success because of a hilarious Winston cat murder story arc and Nick Miller's cool guru routine with Jess. The Schmidt love triangle arc needs to end and end soon. Otherwise, another great episode of New Girl. I just love this every week. It just doesn't get any better than this show. Oh, I bet Winston was crazy this week, too. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was great. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to another comedy that Dan and I have a little bit different opinions on, but we're going to talk about the Goldbergs pilot, Circle of Driving. Show me wax on, wax off. Catch! A nostalgic comedy series about kids growing up in a dysfunctional family in the 1980s. Can the opener, middle child Barry, turns 16 and hopes to get a car for his birthday, but his mother doesn't think he's ready for the responsibility. God, Adam asks Pops for dating advice. Uh, the Goldbergs of the show that I think it could get better if it gets toned down, but I thought there was a lot of yelling in this episode. It just felt like for the first time everyone was just yelling at each other. And I think if it stays that strong, it could become tiresome to viewers two or three episodes down the road. Or maybe I'm just not used to it yet. And in my opinion, I thought the show got better, got more fun to follow when everyone kind of calmed down. And we got moments that made us nostalgic for the time when Nico and I were kids. Like with the scene with Manny the father singing REO Speedwagon with his son in the car, got using the old tape player. And he has the strength to let it show. Here we go. Join me. I can't stop this feeling anymore. I've forgotten what I started fighting for. Look at you! It's time to bring the ship from the under shore and throw away the oars forever. And there's also references to fun things like GoBots and Voltron and stuff like that. Star Wars references, of course. That was all fun stuff. The toned down moments were good for me. Also, the moment at the end of the episode where Barry crashed in the garage door when he was supposed to be backing up made me laugh. Especially when Annie added on to it the line, you're a moron. Can I think if they go with the subtle insults, the show's going to be fine. But the constant yelling like in the scene where Barry locked Manny out of the car might be a little too much. Can I guess that means my final verdict on the show is I don't know if there's anything special about this show at this point compared to any other sitcom, even with its settings being in the 80s. So I'll probably catch it when Supernatural is on hiatus. Give me something to do before a person of interest comes on. But it's not something I feel obligated to catch every week. It's not like a Big Bang Theory or a New Girl or Modern Family or anything like that. Then again, I can see this show capturing a following much like the middle did a few years ago because the Goldbergs came across the show that's kind of in the same wheelhouse. So Nico, what's your verdict on the Goldbergs? Dan, I disagree. I think this is the funniest pilot of the season and will be on my viewing list each week i loved jeff garland as the dad i I loved it i loved the granddad i loved 
just the entire idea of the pilot being set back in the 80s, as you mentioned, you enjoyed as well. I loved seeing the writer slash creator's real family matched up with the actors who were playing the characters based on exaggerated versions of his family. At the end, in the credits, when they're showing the pictures of the cast and the, the actual family, that was a lot of fun because you know that this is an exaggerated version of what this guy went through growing up. And that's, I think, in the Wonder Years sense of it, makes yeah. it so much fun. Patton Oswalt doing the voiceover from the that was a nice being, touch. being the grown-up version. I like that. I love that idea, and I think this will be the next great sitcom that will be on my weekly viewing schedule. Look for my favorite comedic moment of this show each week in the rundown section. Unless, Dan, you get into it more, and then we may move it to the sitcom section going forward if Dan enjoys it. If he doesn't, then it'll just be my fun time yelling about it and talking yeah. about it each week in the rundown section. <laughs> Guy, I happen to like, I think, the second episodes of sitcoms more okay. than I like the first episode for some reason. I don't know if it's more laid down or the writer's not as nervous because they're safe and they got to pick up. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what it is, but I did because with Dads, I thought the second episode was funnier okay. than the first one, even though that's not the greatest sitcom. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> still not sold on that one. I, I just really am not, but... Goldberg's, I'm hoping number two is just as good because I really love this pilot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm going to give it another chance next week. Okay. And we'll see, and, and I'll say something next week. Sounds good. Okay. Now let's move on to a show that's in its 17th season and is so off the wall all the time that you just have to love it. Let's talk about South Park's 17th season premiere with Let Go, Let Go. Come on down South Park and meet some friends, man. In this... Season 17 premiere, Cartman infiltrates the National Security Agency, gets upset by what he finds, get his personal file. Cut. Meanwhile, Butter finds a new audience for his prayers. South Park's season premiere, Let Go, Let Gov, honed in on the NSA's mass surveillance disclosure scandal made famous by American whistleblower Edward Snowden. Only here, it was Cartman who was the whistleblower, literally, as he resolved to infiltrate the NSA and expose its secrets. The beginning of Let Go, Let Gov featured the best jokes from the storyline, including Cartman's gaudy speakerphone conversations about the government invading his privacy. Of course, these were completely undermined by the fact that he was silent simultaneously broadcasting every single thought online. I thought it was amusing and realistic how Cartman had to repeat himself or ask to hear something back again because of the distortion of a cell phone. That was a nice touch. But as the arc progressed, the episode veered more and more into preachy territory. If Cartman's social media frenzy wasn't enough, the introduction of Shitter really drove the point home, especially with Alec Baldwin pioneering the craze. But as arbitrary as it was, a few of the Baldwin thought jokes were kind of funny, but it soon felt like the creators were just cramming them in to break up the straight satire. I absolutely loved Butter's entirely different viewpoint from Cartman's, that is in Instead of fearing or condemning the government, he embraced and worshipped it like a god. For me, the DMV subplot was a little underdeveloped, particularly Butter's door-to-door -door sermons and front-desk confessionals, although I did chuckle at Officer Barbrady giving up Game of Thrones. In general, the storyline lacked enough focus to fully illustrate a clear, distinct point. Obviously, it was supposed to be a counterbalance to Cartman's storyline, but the critique here just wasn't as pointed. In fact, about halfway through, it felt more like a commentary on religion than government. 
Likening the two wasn't necessarily a bad idea, but it all just sort of fell apart in the end, although did provide for some of the best laughs in the second half of the episode. The Santa Claus reveal was also clever, though not as laugh-out-loud hilarious as other contrivances we've seen in the past. Overall, I think Let Go, Let Gov made a few astute observations, but largely failed to make them really funny. The episode relied far too heavily on the Baldwin one-liners, making us think we were getting a steady stream of jokes throughout, when in fact most of the NSA stuff was played pretty straight. While South Park normally excels at lampooning major hot-button issues like this, the season premiere just didn't quite follow through comedically, despite raising some good points. Overall, not their best episode, but I'm still happy to have it back after almost a year hiatus. Now we're going to move on to... Show it's the complete opposite. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) We're going to talk about Back in the Game with its pilot episode. Can this comedy's premiere a divorced single mom and former softball all-star decides to coach her son's baseball team come misfits after they're rejected by the local league little league Kiraki. Guy gets help from her grizzled beer guzzling father. Okay, once promising ball player with whom she's forced to live after being estranged for years. You know, with this pilot, I like James Conn. I liked him in The Godfather. I liked him when he was on Vegas, that TV show on NBC. I like him here as an Archie Bunker kind of character. Okay, his stuff was funny. There were a few good lines. Maggie Lawson, I like her from Psych. I thought the scene where she beamed the one dad of the baseball teams was pretty funny. That was a good scene. A couple good lines here and there. The kid's kind of weird. That scene where he made out with the bully was a little awkward, but there was other stuff like the raccoon in the walls that was kind of funny with James Caan. Nico, this pilot seemed kind of painful to you. And yeah, there's some kicks that needs to get worked out. And again, I think this would make a good movie like Kicking and Screaming starring Will Ferrell rather than a TV show. Because I just don't know how long you could drag it out with a Bad News Bears team for multiple seasons. That that's kind of has me scratching my head. So what was your that's, thoughts on Back in the Game? Yeah, that's exactly what it was going for was that Bad News Bears. But oh, Dan, this is quite possibly the worst pilot I've ever seen. Oh, really? It, it rivals and maybe even surpasses... It wasn't la- great. I know that. Last year's awful Neighbors pilot. And oh, it's God. In its dreadfulness. No, Neighbors is worse. I'm sorry. This show was as bad, but actually probably worse than the promos made it seem. Yeah. If this show lasts more than four episodes, I will lose all faith in the American public's opinion on television. It was so bad that at some point around minute 17, my dad turned to me and asked if this was an hour-long episode, and I had to say, nope, only 22 minutes. All All he could say was, God, it seems like an hour long already. And that is about as telling as anything with how bad it was. I just hope it is canceled early enough that maybe Maggie Lawson can film even more episodes of Psych. That will be the only silver lining of this abysmal show for me. I just could not get into it at all. Well, I'll tell you this. It is not available to watch in very many places. Because if you go into On Demand on ABC, if you have Comcast, you cannot watch this pilot. You can't watch it really many places. The only place you can really see it now is ABC.com. So that makes me feel like it's going to get yanked. Yeah, it didn't show on my DVR, so I couldn't set even yeah, set it okay. to, That's what record. to Yeah, so I had trouble actually finding this, and I didn't actually find it until today, the day we're recording. So yeah, it just I, I it may have it may have gotten such bad reviews and stuff, or maybe they held it for a week in most areas, and it's gonna try and make a play next week. I don't know. I just don't want to see it. <laughs> ABC can't get anything in this time slot. I think they should just put Tim Allen here. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I know that's not the greatest show, but it's better than this. It's in its third season. Yeah, why not? And the first episode was pretty funny with the guys from Duck Dynasty. Yes, so. it was. And yeah. uh, 
And I don't know about Rebel Wilson's show either. Oh, God, I'm not even going to watch That looks it. like it's going to be a flop. Yeah, I think that might actually look like it's going to be worse than this one. Yeah, that's pretty sad. Okay, so I think we're good with this show, talking about it here. I think... This is what from... you should be watching at 7.30, what we're going to be talking about next. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think we can say Back in the Game is probably not going to ever show up in our rundown section. No. But this next show has fought its way back into the rundown section because it has gotten so much better since last season's this mid-season review. This was a good premiere episode. Agreed. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about the Revolution second season premiere, Born in the USA. In the season two premiere, Miles, Aaron, and Rachel find themselves in a small town in Texas where Rachel comes across a figure from her past. Charlie is on a mission in the Plains Nation, and Neville and Jason search a refugee camp for a loved one. If you want to improve your characters like this show needed to do, or put them in a more interesting place, a six-month time job is a great move, especially when it comes to making Charlie into what I think Garrett Kripke wants to be is the female version of his other creation, Dean Winchester, that we kind of really wanted her to be from the get-go of this series. I also thought it was a great way to quickly introduce Rachel's father, played by Stephen Collins, who showed up on a lot of sci-fi shows, and I really think he's going to be a great addition to this show, just simply through the friction that exists this between his character and Miles. Speaking of characters, I'm really anxious to see where they're going to go with Monroe's storyline because I think he has the potential of being the breakout character of this series um, as he seeks redemption for failing his people. At the same time, I was going to be really angry if Aaron, one of the stronger characters from last year, was killed by a stab wound. But the nanites, I think was what those fireflies were, came through in the clutch to save him by creating just the miracle and to pushing Rachel and Aaron on another journey to figure out just what is going on with these fireflies, which could turn out to be pretty interesting now that the great supernatural writer, Betty Lung, casts his hand in things. Sonika, what were your thoughts on the return of Revolution? Dan, since the mid-season finale of last season, this has been a different show. Oh, yeah. It has shed many of the stupid moves that it made early on in last season and become a much tighter, better run, and better written show. Eric Kripke and Ben Elon make a winning team, and some of the changes I mentioned in the Comic-Con episode are going to make this show even better. I think the use of the Texas Stronghold City and the setting as almost a character in itself will make this season much better as well. I can't wait to see where Ben Elon takes us this season. Dan, I was also surprised by the apparent death of Aaron in this episode, but was happy to see the Nanites save him in the end. I'm wondering why that is, and if it has to do with his turning the power on and then off again, and if they are going to give the Nanites some sort of AI ability, and the those Nanites chose to save him because he was the creator of their operating system, or something like that, or if they'll try to keep it less sci-fi and explain it another way. That sounds like Benny Lund, so I think that's where the way they're going to go. That's what I was thinking. Yep. I was trying to get into his mind and yep. see where he would go, and I thought that was the best best method. Best decision the show could have ever made to bring him on. Yeah. That, Unfortunately, you know, that means Supernatural loses him, but I think it's going to I think Supernatural's okay now, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think he will make a bigger difference here like he did last season on Supernatural. And I think this idea of the AI or the nanite 
operating system and all of that stuff will be one of the things to keep an eye on as the season goes forward. Needless to say, I am excited by this show once yeah. again, and I'm really happy with where this pilot or this premiere went. Well, and the other thing is with Aaron, I really thought he was dead. Oh, I did too until because they started the way focusing they did, on his face. Well, yeah. when they did that Danny death, that worked beautifully in making this work. Yep. Because we really thought that they had the balls to do something like that. Again, again, they didn't, thank God, because I think Aaron's a great character. That was one of my favorite parts of the first season. And the development he had in this episode was outstanding. Well, I said to my mom and dad, I said, well, they don't need him anymore. He turned on the power and then turned it off. He's he's done. They don't need him anymore. So they could have very easily killed him. I am so happy they didn't, but I could have seen it going that way if they needed to. So, yeah, it was... It was really, I mean, by the time they had focused on his face for that long with the camera, everybody worth their salt who watches television knows that he's coming back to life. He's going (gasps) to, you know, and then it's going to go to black. But up until that point, we were all like, oh, my God, I think he's dead. (laughs) And this felt like a completely different show right from the beginning of this episode. It felt much and much more quality to it. Yeah. Felt more professional, felt more like Eric Kripke. The way that they incorporated some of his love of classic rock into the episode was really cool. Yeah. Um, I liked some of the little stuff they put in, referencing the idea that it's a post-apocalyptic world. Like with the slideshow thing, come see the oldest living friend. Yeah. David that was, Schwimmer. Yeah. That was a fun line. So I liked that little fun stuff they added in there, too. Fringe was very good with that as well. Very much so. I'm glad to see Revolution use that. It, just, it shows that the writers are pretty much more thought into this than I think they were last season. Yeah. As I said, it's much cleaner, yeah. tighter, well-written. I was show. very excited. Yep. So let's move on now. But uh, I think that deserved a little bit of time because it was such a great turnaround. Exactly. Now we're going to go to a show that didn't need a turnaround, but still came out swinging with a great premiere episode of its second season, Elementary, with the episode Step 9. Holmes and Watson head to London for an unsolved mystery investigation. Got to look up his former mentor, Gareth Lestrade. Sherlock joins up with his estranged brother, Mycroft, who discloses some secrets. Can I hear this was a great episode? It was a great episode. One of Elementary's many, many charms is its proclivity for reworking and extending the Sherlock Holmes mythology. The show played with both Irene Adler and Moriarty to effective and profound results last season, paying respect to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original creations while still putting a fresh and invigorating spin on them. The show earns additional goodwill for having never presented itself as Sherlock Holmes but in the United States. Instead, it's Sherlock Holmes comes to the United States, which means his departure affected those he left behind in London. Elementary has never shied away from this element of its premise, whether it being the Irene and Moriarty plot or Reese arriving in a giant gun filled with drugs. Instead, as Step 9 so very nicely demonstrated this week, it's always going to be a core aspect of the show. The Season 2 premiere introduced Elementary's interpretation of two of Holmes' iconic supporting characters, Inspector Lestrade and Holmes' brother Mycroft, and in doing so, continued to build a show that acknowledges the wider Holmesian universe while still making it its own. Let's look at Lestrade first, since he was also involved in the case of the week, which involved the question of whether or not the media mogul Lawrence Pendry killed his wife. Well, it wasn't really a question of if so much as it was a question of how, since the episode never really served up an alternative. But that's hardly a strike against the mystery, since it was plotted very well. In any case, Lestrade, just as he was in Doyle's stories, was an inspector for Scotland Yard, and the one who took credit for all the mysteries Holmes solved. Though Doyle's Lestrade was already a fairly accomplished detective by the time Holmes started consulting, although more because of sheer determination than actual competency. 
Rather delightfully, Step 9 pushed through on a rather intriguing what-if scenario with regard to Lestrade. What if, after helping Lestrade solve so many cases, Holmes wasn't there to help him? And what if he became addicted to the spotlight? So here, we had a couple of elementary's established beats coming to bear. The ramifications of Holmes leaving London and a new way to illustrate and further comment on Holmes' own struggles with addiction, but through another character, as has become the norm for the series. As far as the case itself went, I think the show stayed within its normal rhythms of giving us just enough information that if, like Holmes, you have a wide-ranging knowledge of various subjects, you'd be able to figure everything out using the clues provided. Elementary has steadily gotten better about building cases where the audience can piece things together, even if the show sometimes veers into Doyle's style of, aha, it was this obscure pipe tobacco that helped me solve the case, Watson, as if everyone had a deep knowledge of different brands of pipe tobacco. That was the case here, as 3D printers are probably still a relatively new technology to many people, but at least all the dots were there for us to connect. By the way, I'd be willing to bet that this television season sees a plethora of 3D printer-related plots, since they are very in the news at the moment, and TV writers are anything if not predictable. Then there's Mycroft. Holmes describes him as fat and lazy. Doyle's Mycroft was also even smarter than Holmes, able to solve cases without even leaving his comfy chair at the Diogen Club. He just lacked the energy and drive to really do anything about it, once or twice referring cases that he'd already technically solved to Holmes so that Holmes could do all the actual work. The two brothers were hardly as icy as presented here, but given Mycroft's overall inertia, they never did see much of one another. Elementary did a nice job of interpreting these aspects of Mycroft. I rather liked the series' slimmed-down and stylish version of the character, played very nicely by Risa Fons. While blowing up his brother's possessions may not have seemed like the best way to go about it, it did clean the slate between these two characters, and I'm hoping Mycroft appears a few more times. So all in all, a very good premiere, keeping up the high level from last year's finale run. Can't wait to see where it goes in season two. And with that, we're going to move on to another pilot episode, another premiere of a pretty good show. Wouldn't you yeah, say, Dan? I think the show has potential. Um, the first episode, I thought it had a few bumps, but I think this is ultimately going to be a great series that people are going to watch every week. So let's talk about The Crazy One starring Robin Williams on their pilot. <laughs> Simon must pull out all the stops and convince Grammy Award winner Kelly Clarkson to record a new twist on a classic advertising jingle for their biggest client on the series premiere of The Crazy Ones. In looking at the pilot for CBS's The Crazy Ones, the word quality comes to mind. It's got a veteran executive producer, as in David E. Kelly, great supporting actors who have starred in their own shows. Kelly Clarkson is a guest in the first episode, and it stars Robin Williams, whose name I think says it all. However, with this first episode, the fast-paced of the modern-day sitcom, which stems from the TV business, making viewers have a shorter attention span. The rapid-fire nature of Robin Williams' comedy made it hard to catch all the jokes in this pilot, giving me the feeling I needed to watch the episode again. In addition, this pilot, I think, was hurt a little bit from my perspective because the funniest part of this episode, with the song about exploding ketchup packets, was spoiled by a number of advertisements and interviews for the show. 
Then again, I think with names like David E. Kelly and Robin Williams being involved in the show, the speed issue with the comedy is going to get ironed out. So my verdict to all of you is keep watching the show. Because really, I believe it's only going to get better. That is going to be a great series because it reminds me of Boston Legal, which was another show I liked a lot. But I think Robin Williams is a better actor than what they had with Chatner and Spader. So I think we're in for a really good show. So keep watching it. I thought the pilot had a few bumps, but I really think this show's just going to keep getting better as it goes forward. In my opinion, it's a slow grow show, which means it's just going to keep getting better as it goes. God, the actors get used to their characters and get used to working together. Yeah, Dan. I can see how the rapid-fire comedy of Robin Williams could be annoying for some viewers, but in reality, it's the thing I love about him. I don't think it's going to be annoying. I just think it's something we need to get used to for some people. No, I mean, I, I'm just saying that other yeah. some some people have always said that like Robin Williams going from one joke to the X yeah. to the next is is annoying. It's the thing I love about him. Right. I love when he gets on a roll and the jokes are bleeding into one another. I just can't help but laugh. And at times, yeah. I'm sure I'm missing jokes, but it doesn't matter because I can't stop laughing. I think what is going to work best for the show is that Robin Williams is surrounded by a good cast that carries much of the comedy weight so that it does not lie exclusively on right. his shoulders and will make for a much better show overall. Also, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar will be funny but she'll also be good for the heart of the show and giving us a compelling story to continue to root for these characters week in and week out. This is a show I think should be considered for our weekly sitcom section going forward because I do think, as you said, it's going to be one of those good shows that is a slow grow, but is going to be one of the ones that at the end of the first season is going to be no questions renewed for additional seasons. I like Sarah Michelle Gellar also being able to do a little bit of comedy in her role. Uh huh. She did that with Buffy as well. Yes. And I like her more as that kind of character rather than the hard drama character she needs to be. I thought it was great in Cruel Intentions, uh -huh. but it just did not work on Ringer. I, I just didn't think that worked and sometimes it came across as silly. Okay. And I think this is going to get a much fuller performance out of her. What, I, what I'm used to with her. So I think I'm really going to, I really liked her character on the show because it was lighter than what she she's tried to do since Buffy. Okay. So I thought that was a great thing too and I want to give her credit for that as well. I think her and Robin Williams went together really well. Absolutely. In the episode. So keep watching this folks. I think this is really going to be a quality show. Maybe up for Emmys as well. Good deal. Yeah. So with that, we're going to talk about a show starring another movie actor that I really enjoy as well. He's really not known for comedy, but I love him because he's been one of my favorite movies all time, Back to the Future. So let's talk about the Michael J. Fox show and its pilot. In the series premiere of this comedy, a popular news anchor heads back to work after a five-year break to focus on his family and health, and both his family and his boss are happy about his return especially since they collaborated to orchestrate it. I'm a huge fan of Michael J. Fox. I like the guy's personality. I've seen all of his movies, and I've grown up watching him on TV, probably seen almost every episode of Family Ties and Spin City. So naturally, I was going to enjoy the show, because as the pilot showed us, he's still pretty much the same guy that left acting years ago uh, due to being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. On that note, I don't want to give the idea that this show gets all about Michael J. Fox overcoming his Parkinson's disease. Again, and he doesn't want you guys to feel that way either. Because I feel that with this show, he's really just trying to do what any other actor does with a sitcom that has their name in the title. Give us an exaggeration of their life. That Parkinson's disease just happens to be a part of Michael J. Fox's life. So why hide it? 
Plus, with the show mentioning jokes about Parkinson's, I felt that they were only there to educate people who may have progressive diseases, to go out there and still live their lives, or teach others who may have never even experienced something like Parkinson's disease, how people with disabilities or those type of diseases want to be treated. And if Michael J. Fox needs to let us in on his personal life be an advocate for that sort of thing, then more power to him. So I guess my status of the Michael J. Fox show is give it a watch, not to expect big-time laughs, like on something you'd get from the Goldbergs, but just something to make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside as a family rallies around a loving father and husband. Sonika, what do you have for us regarding your thoughts on the Michael J. Fox show? I really enjoyed the pilot episode of this show and liked how they incorporated Michael J. Fox's disease into his character and it allows him to work and continue to bring attention to his disease while having some fun with his struggles with it as well. I think this will be fun to see each week going forward, but like you said, it's not going to be a huge laughs every week. There will be funny parts, but I think it's going to be, like you said, that heartwarming story, but in a sort of comedy setting. I was not a big fan of the second episode, though, but got a kick out of him having a crush on his real-life wife in this episode and having fun with that idea. I'm not sure if she's going to be a series recurring or if this was a one-and-done stunt, but I'm sort of hoping it was just a one-and-done because it did start to drag as the episode went along and the fact that it was his real wife he was having a crush on sort of lost its appeal anyway this show will be on my weekly watch list and you should definitely watch it going forward but i'm not sure how much i really want to review it on a weekly basis because it's more of a dramedy than a a true comedy so i think we'll play that by ear going forward yeah it's gonna be hard to pull a favorite comedic moment out of the sitcom yeah but i I think it's best suited for a half an hour format Mm -hmm. i think the two episodes might have been too much for it yeah i think that might have been why i was a little bit less of a fan of the second episode because it just started to drag so I, i think i think once it starts 30 minutes every week i think it'll be more solid. I think every episode is going to feel like the first episode. At least we hope so. We hope so, anyway. But again, there's a big thing right now about this going up against Robin Williams and how they're going to go up against each other and stuff like that. And I guess the crazy ones really pummeled Michael J. Fox show in the ratings, apparently. Okay. And I really want both shows to exist. I love both actors. I want both shows to succeed. succeed. And I'm happy with the Thursday night when I can watch both these shows. Right. Because I enjoy them both, and that's, I mean, if it's quality comedy night, quality sitcom night, then that's fine. That's what I want to see. Are you ready to move on? Yes, that's my griped and uh, <laughs> rundown section. All right. Well, okay, now you now guys are the Wu complained. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to wrap up the rundown section this week, this extended rundown section, with Andy and Wu's Glee review. So take it away, boys. Nico, my name is Wu S. Kim, and alongside me is Mr. Andy Babak, and welcome to the New Direction section, the first episode of Season 5. And Andy, what is the official description for this week's episode of Glee? Episode 501, Love, Love, Love. The members of New Direction are back in action and take on their biggest assignment yet, the Beatles. As Will enlists the kids to pay homage to the classic song catalog from the Fab Four, Blaine and Kurt attempt to answer questions about the future together. Meanwhile, Rachel's New York ambitions take an unexpected turn. I said this to you off microphone. I think that's the best season premiere we've gotten since season two. 
really good material across the board, really good songs across the board. If For those of you who have seen the episode, I know wondering who are not big Beatles fans, Mr. Schuster just like did this correctly when he said, or said this correctly when he said all the songs they used in this particular episode were in chronological order from the Beatles career from like 1963 to, I, I would say 1966. So he was correct about that. I think the acting across the board was good. I thought Leah Michelle's cover of Yesterday was good. Kind of like a, a reprise of the last episode of season three when she came to New York. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, Yesterday was one of my favorite songs of the episode, and it was, here's the thing, this season premiere was really good. It was also the most different one, because it's, technically, the the show is still in, back in the spring, yes. you know, time-wise, so it it was kind of interesting to see how they were doing that, and, and yeah, seeing Rachel si- singing that stuff was just, I loved it. I didn't, I didn't know all the songs that were going to be in it. I was, I, you know, I wanted to stay unspoiled and be surprised. So it was kind of, yeah, that was definitely one of her best songs ever. Yeah, and now that you mentioned it, this is the first season where it really does look like if you watched 422, the season finale of season 4, and watched this episode, there literally feels like there's no time in between. And that's why, and I think that's why it felt so different. We didn't have the usual quote-unquote trappings that we usually get with Glee premieres. Because usually they all start out with reintroducing all the characters and blah blah blah. This, they really didn't do it this time. And we see Rachel as a waitress in New York, just like every aspiring young actress in New York does. They wait tables, and in Los Angeles as well, I made it. It was a nice rest. Yeah, and but I think acting-wise, I think the gold star goes to Kevin McHale and to Becca Tobin. I really liked the, the introduction of this relationship, and I really like the realism in this relationship where Kitty, she's wrong, but you understand her motivations. It's not totally unrealistic to think why she wants to keep her relationship with Artie a secret. What do you think, Andy? No, I think what she felt was just how most girls do feel like in high school today. And it's, it's you know, it's a sad thing, yes, but it's, um, you know, I didn't agree with her, but it, it is, it's just the way it is, and it's, um, it's just, it's just sad in my opinion. But, you know, I think I agree with you. She, like a topic, it, it just, she keeps getting better and better, even though her character is sometimes a bit evil or whatever, but... Yeah, I like this. It's well, just she's Cordelia. I mean, like, she's Cordelia. For you Angel and no, Buffy I- fans, like, she's Cordelia. She's the one person that's going to say what's on her mind and not worry about it. And uh, while I was watching this episode also about the Artie and um, Kitty thing, I had to remember that this is high school. It may seem, like, stupid to us now, but, like, I had to remember back in the day when I was, like, in high school, I, I would probably, like, you know, done something similar to this, and I understand how Artie feels just because, like, it, it would be difficult to date somebody that's not totally like you and that kind of thing. I really didn't like the Tina storyline, shocking, but I did like what the guys did for her. Yeah, that was nice. But I did you love the um, Ed Sullivan like like black and white performance that the guys did? I loved how the girls reacted. By the way, I was yeah, it was fine. It was not one of my favorite ones because I'm I think Tina is getting a little bit too much focus, and I'm I just don't like the writing for her anymore that much because it's either she's complaining or screaming about something or whatever. But no, but it was fine, and it was but it was just not, not one of my favorite performances. Yeah, we had to touch on Sue Sylvester being the principal for just a little bit. You said it was a little unrealistic. Would you like to expand on your thoughts on that? Maybe unrealistic isn't the right word. It just feels silly. Because, and here's the thing. I remember I was talking with Wu a few weeks ago 
in advance, you know, we were talking about, because we had seen a preview that she was the principal, and I was like, I'm not going to say that I called it, but I, what I did say to Wu was, it was um, that, oh, Sue's probably just got Figgins kicked out for something. She just, you know, blackmailed him or whatever, and whoop de do, what happened? But I like that there wasn't, like, this huge, like, big scene. We only got a monologue of how Sue Sylvester came back. And, yeah, we all kind of called it, but I really like her motivations as far as the Cheerios and the New Directions is concerned. She'll keep them around as long as they win, and I think that's fair. I think, I just think that the show, that the showrunner doesn't know what to do with her anymore, so they're just going to make her the villain again. Yeah. And honestly, I think that's I think that's the best thing for her to do. Well, because one of I mean, no disrespect to this performer, but Gemma Mays is no longer with the series anymore. I don't think she might come back. Well, she's coming a, back. If you, she's coming back for your episode this well, year. Well, yeah, I, I was gonna say she might be coming back for like a guest starring role, but she's not a main cast member anymore. So I think I think the awkwardness that we got in season four in terms of the writing, I think with the elements that they're bringing on, I think that's going to be, you know, resolved. But I will say this, though. Two things, then, then I'll let Andy go, and then we have to say goodbye. Really loved the interaction between Colfer and Michael Malley again. Really loved his speech. And I think, I think the all-you-need-is-love, all-you-need-is-love thing that we got at the end, that reminded me why I love this series so much. But not to be a downer, Naya Rivera said in an interview one time, for E! Online, she said, when they were doing these episodes, she felt something was missing. And I have to echo those statements because something did feel like it was missing. Andy, what are your final thoughts? My final thoughts is that it was a difficult premiere because of what's, what's happened and what is going to happen in two weeks. But it was a great premiere. I want to see the second part of this because the Beagles tribute is a two-part of it. So, but I think it was a great episode. I like the claim thing that we got in the end. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this will develop throughout the season because of things that are yet to come and but overall I, it was a great premiere I love the Beatles songs it, I'm not, I've never been the biggest Beatles fan but I've never been against them either yeah and, so. I, and I am a huge Beatles fan I still consider them my favorite band so that's why I like I was looking forward to these episodes but you're right I mean it, I mean not to re repeat things again it, I mean I did feel a little awkward especially in the Rachel scene just because of what is has happened in reality and but we're still gonna have fun with we still have one more episode it's prom week next week so yeah yeah, yeah. and the title it makes me iffy uh, yes, uh, yes, Tina in the Sky with Diamonds. The reason, I think Andy would feel a little less iffy if he was a Beatles fan. Of course, this is a play off of the song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds from Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Yes, I'm a Beatles nerd, so sue me. But I think it's time to say goodbye, Andy. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's time to say goodbye. Don't miss the second episode of Glee called Tina in the Sky with Diamonds, 9 p.m. on Fox. And we will be back with you next time. So see you next week, guys. Bye-bye. All right, thanks, guys, for your review on Glee. Now we're going to jump into the voicemail section. The call has been forwarded. For 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. <laughs> Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu in response to our Comic-Con episode and Bones, and a little bit about his 
thoughts going forward in the How I Met Your Mother premiere because he sent it in before those episodes aired. Hello, Nico and Dan. It's your old buddy, Willis Kim, with his thoughts on your Comic-Con episode. I wanted to dispel the rumors on the Google Plus and the Twitter pages for ATA. And if you can't tell by the timbre of my voice, I am being facetious. I will not, I will not be doing a bone section on ATA. Let me let me set the record straight on Bones as a series. I like this series. It's not necessarily my favorite series. I do like watching it week to week. I do enjoy the characters. And maybe I look at it a, from a different perspective as Nico and Dan did. Because I'm assuming they watched the, se- the season or the series from beginning to end. Either on DVD or online somehow. I don't know if this is the case. Maybe it's because I watched it like midway through gives me a gives me a different perspective on Bones than Nico and Dan does. I'm not I'm not criticizing at all. I'm just like assuming that this is why they seem to dislike the show now that it's gone in their eyes it's gone down in quality. I don't know if that's the general consensus of the fans because honestly Nico and Dan are the only people I know that I converse about Bones with. So I don't know if other Bones fans feel the same way they do. I I, I am looking forward to season 9. I, I'm with Dan though. I don't think Christopher Pollan should be a season long villain. I think he's been a villain for two seasons already. I think it's time to like wind him down and get either a new villain in there or to end the series. Not to insult David Boreanaz. But I think he is a little bit overconfident of the fact that the series could go 10 seasons. Not that I don't want it to go 10 seasons, but I don't necessarily want it to go 10 seasons just because how many stories can you go? And this is where I kind of agree with Nico and Dan. How many more stories can you go with the series that haven't been done before? I mean, Kim and, Kim and Jack, I mean, um, Kim and Jack, Jack and Angela are married. Celie and Temperance are Celie and Temperance are almost getting married. It's not far off to think that Aristu and Cam might tie the knot. Where else could you go with the series that already hasn't been gone? Like, I think most of the major story arcs for a lot of these couples and a lot of these characters has been done, unless they do a complete one eighty. Like how I met your mother did, which I'll be getting to in a sec. I don't think I could see this show going on another year after season nine. But who knows? I may be wrong. I am totally with Dan. I don't want, and this is relating to how I met your mother. Sorry guys, I never really get at my segues this week. This has to do about how I met your mother. I'm with Dan completely that I don't want at the end of. 924 or 925 or what the episode number might be at the end of season 9, the final season. I don't want it to be revealed that Ted reveals that the mother passed away and that is why he's gone through every minute detail of how he met his mother. It makes sense. I'll give Nico that. It makes sense. That's the reason why he's gone into this greater detail to explain every little thing that's happened in his life up to the point where he he met the kid's mother. It makes sense, but I don't know how I would feel at the end of a nine season 
journey with these characters to find out that Ted made the love of his life, but he only had, you know, let's say, a, a 10, 11 good years with her rather than a whole lifetime. I don't think after all the teasing that's been done over the last nine seasons or eight seasons thus far, that we, that's how we want it to end. That's how we want it to be. I personally would feel very disappointed. Not saying that, again, not saying it wouldn't make sense, but I would feel disappointed. A couple more things to, just to wrap it up because I don't want to take too long. I do, I do agree with Andy, Nico, and Dan. I really, I really like what's on the horizon for Once Upon a Time. Though I do agree with Dan and Nico that other, other than, other than like a few good things about season two and the two good things about season two I will say is the journey back home even though that had a little bit of missteps the reveal of who Bellfire was and the swerve with Owen and Tamara generally the pacing of season two felt a little off I didn't see it so much because I was watching the show on Hulu Plus so I could watch the thing all the way through. But I understand if you're watching it week to week with normal hiatuses, you you as an audience member could feel very, very disjointed and very disattached to the series just because of the pacing and scheduling issues. I hope they do fix that next fix that next season. We have heard the announcement of who Ariel's gonna be. I'm not gonna say it in the voicemail just because I'm leaving that to Nico and Dan and Andy. Ultimately, I am looking forward Shield. I think it's going to be a lot like the Shield comic book, and I and I think that it's going to do well. I just I just don't particularly know how, like Dan and Nico said, even though they did it on Angel, they did it on Dollhouse, and I'm talking about Joss and his crew, that they're going to keep the quality of the effect shots up week to week. I'm really I'm really concerned about that. Even though I will say that I think it can be done. Uh, this is coming from a Whedon guy, a, very, a long time Whedon guy. I'm really interested to see though what is Whedon and his co- company and his crew going to be do- going to do different on a show of his that I have not seen before. That's something that I'm actually really interested to see. Because to his credit, from Angel, Angel th- through Dollhouse, I have n- I have not been disappointed by Joshua. I have not been disappointed by Joshua. He's surprised me every single time. Again, from Angel to Dollhouse, I think he's done fantastic work on all four of his shows. And I'm really interested to see what he's going to do next. Um, nothing really else to, nothing really else to say, really. I mean, the guy's pretty much covered everything. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. There is one more thing. The Veronica Mars movie. I like what I heard from the panel. Anybody who has seen Veronica Mars, either on DVD, through iTunes, online at the WB.com, will all say the same thing. Veronica Mars had a very lackluster ending, which is why they're doing this movie. I like the idea of Sheriff Lamb's child being the new sheriff. I like this whole idea that there will be an end game with Veronica and Logan. I think that's what we all wanted from 
towards the end of the season. I'm really interested and kind of chuckled that they brought Piz back. Because anybody watching the season, the third season of Veronica Mars, knew that he was really the Riley to, to Logan's Angels. And, and, and if Buffy's Veronica, we all know who she's, who, who Veronica's supposed to end up with. And really, that's what Rob Thomas said at the end of season two, on the second season of Veronica Mars DVD, when they really were deciding who's the better choice for Veronica as a love interest, Duncan or Logan. And I think it, we, and I think all fans will say Logan was the better choice as the love interest for Veronica. Again, guys, I don't want to take up too long. I've, I've probably taken up more time than I should have. A lot of good, information covered on this on the comic-con episode big 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 season for tv you'll most likely hear me on once upon a time air um on our love of all hunters podcast discussing arrow i won't cover that because i already covered that in the comic-con episode i will chime in here and there about once upon a time once upon a time in wonderland hi i'm with your mother and when the uh, glee and when the following comes back. So you'll hear my voice a lot on this podcast. Let's take it back to Dan and Nico. See you later, guys. Bye. Yeah, thanks again for your great comments this week, Wu. We look forward to hearing from you, and maybe some of our listeners next week will have some comments to play about all these pilots that they watched in our voicemail section next week. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. God, if you absolutely hated one of these pilots, you can leave a voicemail about that too. Like if you need to vent about back in the game. Now that was a waste of 30 minutes of your life. Go ahead. Indeed. All right. So with that, we're going to end the show so I don't pain you anymore. So we're going to go into our closing. So Nico, what's going on next week? Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover the fall 2013 TV season and many new premieres with Once Upon a Time, Castle, Person of Interest, and The Legend of Korra, and our sitcom section, including How I Met Your Mother, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on the premiere of Homeland, Sleepy Hollow, The Blacklist, New Girl, Revolution, Elementary, and maybe some new premieres as well. But not back in the game. Don't worry. (laughs) But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. You can also be sure to check out our spinoff podcast we've got here at Across the Airwaves. we got something called It's Tangent Time, which is basically entertainment topics that Wu and Michael want to talk about at the time of recording. And Andy's been joining them for the past couple weeks talking comic books and Marvel comics and some other stuff. So check it out if you want to hear their opinions on stuff. Also, we have Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which basically covers all of the content that DC Comics provides for its fans. Right now, we're just covering Beware the Batman. We also review Smallville Season 11 comic books as well. We also review the comic books that DC are currently releasing. Also, uh, we've got the Helicarrier podcast. That's a brand new show that actually just premiered this week. Got that stunned by Andy and a newcomer for our podcast, Chris Duker. Got that's dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Got again, that was a show Nico and I really enjoyed watching as well, correct? Yeah, Dan, I, yeah. I really enjoyed that pilot. Had to send in a voicemail to Andy and Chris to let them know how much I loved it. But yeah, we would cover it here, but we already have another podcast doing yeah. it, so no point in doing it twice. But our thoughts are also on that episode as well. Yep. So if you want to hear what we thought go along with that go ahead but uh we're gonna have andy and chris take care of it from here on out and they really got a great show for you planned so i suggest all of you check it out if you love that pilot because we loved it god we're excited about this new show
And also we have ATA Logbar Hunters, which is on a hiatus right now, but will be coming back when Arrow comes back. And of course that show is dedicated to covering the CW's Arrow in greater detail. And that's a show hosted by Michael and Wu. So if you're into Arrow, you're excited about it, listen to their podcast, which will be coming back, was it October 10th? I think that's That sounds right. That sounds right. Again, Arrow comes back October 10th. Their podcast may be a few days later, but uh, once the season starts, they will be covering every new episode of Arrow on a weekly basis while Arrow is airing. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us by visiting our newly updated and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also click the button on our page to like our Facebook. And through doing that, you will stay updated on our podcast episode releases and also be able to follow all the entertainment news that Nico reports on during our Across the Airwaves episodes. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across Airwaves. There's no the on there. It's just Across Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Plus. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And with that, you can give us your thoughts or feedback on any of the shows we cover or our podcast in general. So uh, if you're interested, do that. Also, if you'd like, you can check out our YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for all sorts of Across the Airwaves events, as well as upcoming movies. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you could contact us, you could download our podcast box app, which will let you contact our podcast and listen to our podcast episodes on your iPad and iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you can download our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace to get that same content. So again, that's our podcast episode and ways you can contact us. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, Andy Babak, and Chris Duker, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstuck. And until our next episode, we will catch you on the airwaves. And I hope you enjoyed all the new shows that came back to town with this episode. See you guys. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.